Welcome back to another special edition of the Michael Deacon program. My name is Michael, and I am the Echoes of the Fallen, straight out of the gutters from Hell Central, California. I'm proud to be here. First time listeners out there, thanks for finding this program. We hope you stick around. This is a very different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. We do admire you for your curiosity. Joining me tonight is the return of Mr. John Kelly. And of course, he is a veteran here of the program. CBS Radio Experience. Number one rated U.S. television, his work exploring consciousness, communications, and paranormal and UFO phenomena. John Kelly is an international clinician and a world-famous speech analysis. He's been here before, and he's made his return. Yes, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. What's up, boys and girls? Welcome back for another exciting episode of the Michael Deacon program. Can you believe it? We're back again. I was just on with Mr. John Hogue last night. I hope you enjoyed that. Those of you who did listen, by the way, and if you haven't, please go back and listen. Now, without further ado, let's get down to brass taxes and bring in Mr. John Kelly. John, thank you for being here this evening all the way from Canada. That's right. Vancouver, British Columbia. Great to be with you, Michael. Thank you. Representing from the Great White North. Thank you so much for returning, John. It's always a honor and pleasure to have you on the program. Well, I thought, you know, it's end of year time for a wrap-up special. Uh, who better to talk to about that than Michael Deacon? You know what? I really appreciate those kind words. And uh, John, you always do a fantastic job when I bring you on the program. You actually brought your own uh, talking points here tonight, which I was incredibly impre- impressed by really you are <laughs> you are a professional no doubt just trying to hold it down you know hold, yes. hold on my current corner of the universe up here. right and of course you have drawn assignment this evening and i'm so glad you're here we will be we will be breaking down what i like to refer to as the most chaotic year in history wow do you agree with that uh in my history certainly <laughs> it's been nuts right yeah it's been it's been over the top and i think uh, a lot of the year Know, uh, people, creative people have been uh, creating solutions just to manage, you know, basic infrastructure problems. You know, a lot, a lot of creative projects weren't possible this year or to uh, to really do when we were just trying to just trying to struggle to reorganize and regroup to, to confront the crisis that's been facing us. Right. Earlier in the program, I said you were uh, experienced in television and radio. You used to work for CBS. Um, can we talk a little bit about your background just to drive it home for the newer listeners out there? True. I got involved in, in talk radio 20 years ago as a correspondent, and I was producing uh, intelligence assessments of, of U.S. and world news and, and developing predictive reporting that was recognized uh, throughout media all over the world. Uh, made me very popular guest in German radio, British radio, um, Africa, uh, you know, most of the continents. I was able to, to tour tour via radio talking about news intelligence that I decrypted from the voices of human speakers. And I was, was at the same time I was marketing my, my private clinical practice at yourinnervoice.com, where I provide individual services for people looking for answers to their emotional health and, and family of origin issues. 
uh, producing a special kind of uh, speech decryption service. So uh, in the course of this kind of reporting, my, my reporting was very successful in so much as that I consistently beat the odds and reported stories, uh, the facts from, from stories that became mainstream news weeks, months, and years after my reports were first initiated. And so as my name climbed the grapevine of U.S. media, I was eventually invited to host uh, my own feature at the mother, at mother station in uh, CBS in radio in Minneapolis in one of the small sister stations down there. They gave me, a, they gave me the, uh, the green light to start planning for syndication across the country based on my excessive high ratings uh, in uh, radio and television. I, I uh, peaked out on, on CBS television news in Cleveland where I uh, participated in a broadcast that received the number one Nielsen rating for the November sweeps. I think it was 2005 or 2006. Um, and so my 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 uh, you know my my uh, tour of the media world uh, took me from you know the the lowliest uh, caller into uh, you know top forty radio shows as a kid to uh, top rated television uh, where again uh, a major partnership like CBS uh, stood up and and helped me uh, you know helped me to reach audiences without Fox News and CBS and all the big players who stood behind me I would never be able to reach the audiences that I did. And do you miss being on the radio? I miss connecting with audiences absolutely, and I and I feel that today um, in today's world where censorship is, is such a watchword on social media in particular, and deplatform issues deplatforming issues are arising for talkers right. all stripes. Then uh, it's uh, it really looks, makes me look back at the privilege ride that I experienced, uh, and, and and in comparison, I, I feel like it, it, it could hypothetically be impossible to recreate that under today's conditions. No doubt. You can't recreate lots of things that happened 20, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. Well, so to your point that, you know, we are a different society. Oh, we are absolutely time. a different society. Our, our hierarchy of needs and values has, has shifted dramatically and it's exhibited in our, in our public choices and decisions. And I don't just refer to our electoral votes, but I mean our responses to uh, national crises and emergencies. Is, 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 uh, if we were to hold the 9-11 events and the public response to that up to today's crises, we consider the scale of reported death being, you know, factors of multiples of, of the losses over 9-11. Well, 9-11 became a cause of war, and the U.S. launched an invasion, multiple invasions over this nonsense. And uh, and yet here we are with so many more. We've lost so many more people, apparently, but nobody's knocking like that now. Nobody's mobilizing nationally. Nobody's unifying nationally to do anything. It, it seems we're all we're in our uh, we're in our isolated lockdown, uh, you know, lo locale, regional experience, uh, it, it feel, maybe I'm mistaken, but it feels like there is no national unified response presently. That's, that's clearly identifiable that at least I can identify. Right. There's so much to say in what you just um, conveyed to us. I, I do want to talk about the sort of acceleration phase that we are in right now. Our lives changed in a matter of weeks. Yes. To the um, cyber gods, as I like to call them. Yes. All hell well, the cyber gods. Are you talking about social media? I'm talking about all the giant corporations that tell us what we can uh, think and say or uh, do, basically. The, 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 the major media influencers who bombard us with advertising right. and messaging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that bombardment of messaging that defines, that, that by, de facto defines cultures because it, just by compelling people by force. Yeah, but also think of the online services that we use compared uh, pre-COVID we're pretty much forced to uh, use the internet now. Forced to use the internet versus, uh, well, give, give, give me more. I mean, we, television, radio, newspaper, internet, these are all different kinds of media. Uh, and we're so all how, slaves you know, to the media. 
Oh, oh, the slavery to the media. Well, this is the thing that yeah, we've created this monster and it's uh, it's brainwashing us uh, Cyber you know, against our best interests. Right. Well, mass media has this effect and this is a known thing. You know, it goes back to stage hypnosis before there was broadcast. Right. You go to theaters in, in previous uh, centuries and, and millennia, all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans and their theaters and the orator, the oratory and the play and the theater. And the uh, the audience effects that were being studied and researched at those times, so, you know, that the art and science of, of audience interaction and propaganda were being developed in the ancient in the ancient world. It's not as if we just made it up. It's simply that we've uh, we're doing it evolved. on a scale that wasn't yeah. possible in the ancient world. It's evolved. That's all. And it's refined. It's much more refined than it was. But the principle is the same. The human the human right. urge, in other words, to orate, to tell stories, and to influence uh, is is native to uh, to our species. Yes. And John, by the way. The last time you were here, we did a little bit of a reverse speech. Well, we yeah. didn't actually do that. We just played some of your clips. Mm -hmm. Just to uh, refresh the newer listeners out there, um, how on earth did you get involved in that, John? I, I got involved because I was interested in digital audio, and I was deeply involved in music research since I was a teenager. So in my music research, I was transcribing um, musical performances by virtuosi, different instruments, uh, to learn to learn. You know, to learn musical materials. And uh, in the advent of the uh, digital age in the 1990s, where the, where the, the PC desktop became a, a usable digital audio workstation, I, uh, I invested in some software to help me with those studies. And then as the internet evolved in the, within a matter of months and years, uh, I started to learn about uh, radio broadcasts coming out of the United States that wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily access. Because, for example, like uh, full libraries of radio archives were available online shows that you might hear on a Friday night, but if you miss it, you know, the radio station might replay it sometime. But now we could we could access show through digital archiving, we could access shows whenever we want to hear them. So I went back to Art Bell's archives then. They became available. Started listening to his his broadcasts on, on that topic. And I, I got in touch through that with a school in Southern California that had been uh, licensed as post-secondary vocational at that time, been through state certification. They were offering vocational training in uh, clinical applications and uh, investigator um, applications for, the, for these speech studies. And so this is a very uh, complica complicated area that has history. Uh, essentially, you know, I can show, I can, I can replicate the science that was published in the letter section of, of Nature, the science journal in the late 1990s, referring to studies coming out of Southern California where research was done to granularize uh, speech recordings and resequence the grains, and in those sequences, people were hearing human speech sounds. They could they could recognize speech even if it was re, uh, sampled, granularized, and then resequenced. And the Associated Press said that out out of that, they said the brain understands backward speech. So people who understand granular audio production and granular techniques, such as reversing the spin on a grain, the time in the time domain, the, that that's that's the domain of like audio production, music production. Those kind of tools have been in the, in that realm for for decades. And I'm simply, uh, I'm simply an, a, a world-recognized expert in a very narrow element of digital audio and in a very specific procedure, whereby that I'm able to use this technique to decrypt future uh, intelligence from present-day conversations. So my famous reporting included the uh, inaugural address of President George W. Bush in January 2001, where I determined that an invasion of Iraq was pending and published at that time. I identified uh, the BTK killer in Wichita, Kansas, by his demonic confession uh, messaging that I determined from these audio studies. I had I had an interview, a pre-court hearing interview of the killer, and I heard him talking about demonic possession issues. Really? And then when I researched the story deep in depth, I, I, I discovered that the real killer had told reporters in the 1970s that he had demonic possession issues that drove him to kill. 
He wrote about it in letters to the police and the journalists in Wichita, Kansas in the 1970s. And so I put, uh, that was my evidence that the, the parallelism was, was significant in so much it was statistically unusual to have the suspect and the, and the known killer both talking about the same issue. Right. So I brought that to morning radio in Wichita uh, on the morning of the Dennis Rader's uh, court hearing appearance. And 50 minutes before the appearance, I, I presented my evidence in, in Wichita morning radio. And, and 50 minutes later, he confessed to all the crimes. Uh, and tw- 10 days later, he, he openly stated to the press that he felt that he was possessed by demons, which is, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the level of tangibility at this point, you know, the level of embodiment of my uh, abstract claims about, you know, decrypting human speech. Yeah. All of a sudden becomes embodied and tangible to, you know, it becomes empirical at that point because from thousands of miles away without any contribution from well, any participation from me, the, the, the speaker is volunteering what I already had described. Beyond that, uh, I continued to make uh, different kinds of progress, uh, reporting and writing. I wrote for Examiner.com for several years. I wrote stories about Russian spies, including the FBI. By the way, John, I have to interject one moment here. Hmm. In terms of being demonically possessed, your thoughts and opinions? Uh, well, this is, yeah. <laughs> I must ask. It, it, my, my, my story invites that question because... Um, it's it's a strange it's a strange uh, way of investigating crimes. <laughs> yes, the, the cult. Uh, do tell, right? do tell. <laughs> I mean, John, I well, come up, uh, I come up with notes for for you and for other guests, and all of that just goes right out the window. Well, I think that uh, what was significant in this case was that 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 was the fact that was verified. There were other you know gruesome facts in the case that were verified. And I don't mean to trivialize the terror of terrible horror that he inflicted on that community. But uh, in terms of the, what was meaningful for my research, it was the, it was the uh, it was the it was the hit on target for factuality and verification that would be impossible for me to influence. Uh, but as to whether I could empirically measure that claim beyond what he had said, it's all that we're now in the realm of faith, it's all faith-based. And so, in terms of faith, I'm interested in yoga, and yoga is interested in, in things happening on the, on Earth. We're not interested in events in heaven or in hell. We're interested in things happening here. And if we think people behave like demons sometimes. And maybe we think we need to help remediate that. Well, that's true. And people act like angels. Well, we hope to support that, too. Yeah. Well, most of the time they do act like they're possessed by something, right? Uh, well, hopefully by their better, their better uh, angels, I hope. <laughs> there's a lot of, <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of things about human consciousness that are not easy to understand. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about the concepts of possession, then you have to go back to uh, anthropological studies or else you have to go to uh, um, indigenous cultural studies and be, or, or become a part of an indigenous society to, to recognize their traditions related to uh, medicine practices and possession. So we could talk about like Stone Age um, trans channelers, these kinds of conceptions with these prim- primordial practices that people still practice today would be, ma- would be manifest in Stone Age societies. And anthropologists say we can see this because remote tribes still practice in this in some cases have been found to practice continuously in, in, you know, in an unbroken link from their ancient tradition. So possession, concepts of demonic possession or spirit possession are as archaic as humanity fundamentally. But as to what they really mean, uh, you know, modern psychiatry uh, has abandoned that as, as, a, uh, as a road to cure. I mean, modern psychiatry is interested in molecular medicine. They're not looking for the Lucifer molecule. Right. right? So, but in the realm of faith and in terms of day-to-day human experience, so... Uh, it's you know the, the folklore and the modern day folklore that attends that accompanies claims would escape us. And further to that, I will say this may sound a little hypercritical, but I would say that a, a church culture, a religious culture that is deeply invested in the in, in the in the priest's power of healing demonic uh, possession would have a big investment in propagandizing that as, as something that was uh, you know a valid claim. 
whereas I have no, I have no investment in it whatsoever. Understood. Some would some would say some politicians are um, possessed. Oh well, this is part of this. Yeah, this is part of today's uh, rhetoric in, in the political uh, sphere, specifically yeah. because of high-profile figures who've been around this White House and the president's spiritual advisor, who has made uh, intensive, uh, intensive uh, pleas, uh, public pleas, uh, for things like uh, angel. Seemingly angel immigrants from other countries to come to the United States to help solve the problems. I, I think it was one of the things she was, she was asking for. Was she calling them angels? But I think she was talking about immigrants. But other things, she, she and others in her in her faith circle uh, talk about uh, de- demons and that. I think the specific language of today in in, in, in the most extreme uh, arc of rhetoric is that uh, one's political opponent is 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 a demon or demon possessed. And therefore, the only virtue is in voting for the opposite uh, party. Right. That's, that's the kind of t- talk, you know. That's the kind of uh, guttural talk that's that's emerging. You could thank <laughs> social uh, yeah. discourse. I don't know if it's a very high level of discourse, sure. but people are talking like that. <laughs> well, you could thank social media for that. That's where all of that started. You label someone a demon or he's a satanic, and then all you know. All hell breaks loose. Again, this goes back to the ancient world. I mean, our our ancient, ancient Stone Age ancestors were demonizing each other too, because it's the only way you could motivate normally sane people to go to war against each other. Uh, you know, you have to you have to boot camp everybody to get them excited about killing enemies, because human human beings aren't normally uh, predisposed to psychopath and sociopathic behavior. So, so in other words, the politics of demonizing is an archaic ploy. It's typically, you know, you know it's uh, war is a uh, what did that famous marine general tell us? Uh, that war is a racket. Right. Yeah. And man he, is he saw, it, he saw it firsthand. And man is wolf to man, John. You know that. Well, and so in this aggressor versus aggressor world, you know, big do- big dog, top dog, top dog has right. to be a, a virtuous dog. You know, or else or else, or else we're all doomed. You know? Certainly, we're all doomed because we will be led by bully force to our doom. Otherwise. And by the way, John, what's going on with the family and friends out there in Canada in regards to COVID? Do you know anyone who's contracted the virus? Uh, I, uh, I'm aware of folks, uh, yeah, you know, in my, in my circle, it's, it's not hard nowadays. I'm sure, as you know, from asking around, it's not hard no- nowadays to find folks who have been pretty close to it. Because some folks, uh, that I know have been, uh, have been hospitalized and those wards have, have had infections while they were in. Really? So these, you know, these extremely complicated scenarios, uh, are, 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 are happening in, in the lives of people around me now. Well, uh, you know, certainly it's not the only yeah. it's the only place where this is going on. But yeah, we, we've got people in hospital. We've got we've got infections in hospital. We've got infections in senior homes. We've got uh, we've got a lot of seniors here. You know, we have a lot of our beautiful seniors here in Vancouver because it's you know it's considered a it's it's a, it's a warm, modest climate compared to the rest of Canada. People come here to retire, and uh, yeah, we're losing a lot of our seniors. So our senior health officer in the province, you know, cries regularly. It seems when she gives her briefings because it's so uh, disturbing. Oh my, uh, she's, so she's actually crying. So, so what I. What I want to say further is Lord. simply that, it, yes, the events of these times are very disturbing, and uh, I have, it's been very disturbing for me personally. I found it very disturbing, and I, I'm trying, I'm doing my best to, you know, to, to give my best every day, but I assure you that um, I've never felt as challenged in that capacity as I have you know, this year. It's been the most challenging year. Some of my very religious friends say this is the end of the world, and COVID is one of the um, plagues from the uh, Bible, they say, one of the prophecies. Well, we may feel that, you know, we're being remediated through a terrible, bitter pill. We may feel that way. It's possible, you know, that we may feel that uh, there's some reckoning coming through this and possibly some resolution, too. But it, but the pill is intensely bitter. This is not a sweet pill. 
So, you know, like uh, humanity is, isn't the first time our ancestors or, or us as the descendants were ever called upon to address a, a, a very severe problem. Right. Uh, and, and the, you know, the basis that I look at is that uh, the, proof of our, the proof of our continuity is, is founded in the fact that we were born. Because if our ancestors were, unable, were not intelligent enough to come up with creative solutions, we would have never been born. So this is the fact that we're here is evidence that humanity is intelligent enough to overcome some very serious problems. So I, I, I still hold out hope that we've got a, we've got a, an intense creative and brain trust in North America that's that's pulling in a good direction for for everybody to get through this. So I haven't seen all the results yet, but I have a lot of faith in in, in our brain trust here. Someone in the chat, um, Kdub says Vancouver got hit pretty hard. Well, uh, compared to the rest of our province, we're we're a very large concentration of, of, of the population for British Columbia. If you look at a map, uh, we have a lot of we have vast tracts of open land here, and a lot of resource development like mining or lumber and fishery, versus you know massive urban centers. But Vancouver is you know it's comparable to a Seattle or a, a Portland, and um, uh, you know the climate here as well. We were a very um, fun-loving, liberal. Uh, culture traditionally uh, people come here sure to a, a tourist town you know it's a place to celebrate these kinds of things and so those kinds of um social vibes definitely influence people's decision making in the first half of the year I, i'm quite sure and uh, they've, they've there have been even up in this past quarter there have been parties where fines have been issued or or i've, I've had reports in my fr- my network of friends yeah that folks had birthday parties with 100 guests and 40 guests got infected holy shit we talk about hard hitting. Yeah, I would think that that's you know that's a pretty intense uh, wake up call. That uh, the level of danger here is is tough. Uh, I was in a city restaurant, one of my favorite places in the middle of town, uh, last week, and they were asking for uh, they wanted to temperature check and to ask medical history stuff uh, before they let you into the restaurant. Oh my! And my feeling was, you know, I respect the liability the owners have when they're hosting people in their space, like with their insurance must look like to have people coming into their place, right? Right. I respect all that, but there's no way I'm going to get off, I'm not going to go off my sofa to go someplace for, for a, you know, the, the, a medical TSA strip down before I can, you know, have, have some fun. I mean, that's, that's, that's not hospitality. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't feel too good about that. And the other thing, I, I guess, if you want to hear my street beef about life in Vancouver, is that a lot of our small business owners in, in retail are, are, are under terrible pressure. You know, our, we have a, we have Manhattan-priced real estate here. Mm, not. I see. And so I didn't know that. The cost, of oper- the cost of operation for small businesses is already enormous. So when, when all the tourists don't show up and all yeah. these other things, yeah, you know, all right. the pressures come down on the cost of operation, it's you know, all the ridiculous turnstiles that they have to run through and hoops they have to jump through to stay open and all. So by the time you get to them and you get to the stores, it's getting – there can be – it's easy for people to, have, to be exceptionally cranky and have frayed nerves and lose it. And we lo- you know, we're losing our uh, civil decorum amongst ourselves you know it's, it's becoming like uh i don't i don't want to you know, you're talking about uh, the dog eat dog culture i don't want to go i don't want to go scrum every time i need to go down to the corner store to get milk when i was a music student spending the winter in, in manhattan i was staying in the, the some of the least fancy neighborhoods so i i was learning all the ways of the streets you know like how to not get killed and stuff like that oh my <laughs> So when, you, when, when I need to go to a corner store to do that trip to get the, the liter of milk or you know, the pint, I had to walk between the guardian angels and the crack dealers on the sidewalk down there in Hell's, in Hell's Kitchen, you know, just about to bust out into whatever you know, street, street fight was going to happen. <laughs> and there's just me trying to go to the grocery store, and that was a daily experience. And what I'm getting to is the daily experience in Vancouver, the joyous, celebratory, cultural, and uh, relaxed, laid-back 
Lotus Land vibe that we had shared here. Yeah, you know, for the most part. Yeah, for the most part, that's sort of the sort of picture I got. But I mean, uh, I don't really want to admit this, but what I do know from Canada comes a lot from Mark Emery. Are you close with Mark? Yes and no. I, I don't want to, you know, I, I can't really talk about that, but yes and no. I, I, I only know him through the media. I, I, I have no acquaintance with him. I know he's here, but or, well, he, he used to be here. I think they moved to Toronto. I, I don't know the latest of him, Mark. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'll just leave. I'll just leave it at that. But from what I do know, it seemed like a very relaxed place. Very, like you said, very liberal. So I'm that's always. We were pitch, that's mm-hmm. what we were selling. You know, our, our, our and our the, the people. A friend of mine who grew up in the Bay Area in the, in the '60s moved up here during the Vietnam War. And he said when he was talking about, you know, leaving the country to come up here to his friends down there, they, they were telling him that, that that place is like left of Paul Pot. I mean, it was we're further left than the Maoists. Mm-hmm. So that was the <laughs> yes. cultural reputation. So all of that, you know, sort of uh, that sort of vibe, uh, we're not feeling it right now. We may we may get it back. I see. I they're, see. They're promising we're going we're to get it back, but we're not there now. We're in the you know, we're in the middle of our winter. It's dark. Uh, we'll, we'll be we're praying for longer days. And uh, if we get some relief on these other fronts, you know, that'll be good too. But uh, yeah, right now it's not, uh, yeah, this is, this isn't, this isn't the, we're not, there's no big celebrations. Yeah. Everyone's sort of staying at home. And Vancouver, I'll tell you further, just give you even a further Vancouver tip. It's like this, Um, you know, people here, it's, it's not necessarily the warmest cultural place. Singles who come here tell, always say the same thing. They have a hard time meeting people. So the, in other words, the flinching that comes with the COVID uh, culture it's just amplified people's oh, uh, yeah. dis- I bet. distancing. Already, you know, we're already kind of we're already a little on the cold side up as it is. You know, socially here, people complain about that for decades here. But I tell you now that any you know anything people are so, people are uh, triggered very quickly uh, to flee from any kind of social activity where there's any risk or any hint of risk. It's just really, um, you know, it's it's, it's disunifying. Uh, what can I say? Am I disappointed? Absolutely. I, I don't like living like this. I don't think anyone does, but the good thing that came from social distancing, and for me, this is for me personally, I don't like when people will stand so close to me in line. So now I don't ever, I don't ever have to worry about that anymore, John. Well, Sting used to sing about that, right? Don't stand, right? Don't stand so close to me. Exactly. It's a famous police song. Right. I was going to say, didn't he say that? But yes, I don't care if you're a guy or a girl. I've never liked that, John. I don't like the feeling of anyone being behind me. You don't like crowds. Don't like crowns at all, so this isn't really too troubling for me personally. Hmm. And and it, where you where you reside, what I mean, what size? What is the size of the community? It's really small. I live in El, El Centro, California, way down south. It's a very small population. We're talking like a couple hundred people. Well, I would have to say right now it's about forty four thousand. All right. Well, yeah. Well, so that you know, it's a substantial population. Uh, I, but uh, you know, you're 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 laid out. Just like a, a regular city grid, urban yeah, layout. Pretty much. It's a bit smaller. Yeah. There's a lot of agriculture out here. You don't want to be out here if you have allergies, that's for sure. Uh, well, you have a big, big agricultural zone. Well, right. You don't want to be out here. You're going to be sneezing um, for days. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I, you, I, I've, on, our, on previous talks, you, you, you talked about living down there and you talked about the lake and uh, oh, yes. the, the different conditions. Well, so, you know, Southern California in general, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is sunshine. I talked is, to you. you know, some, did I mention the Salton Sea? Is that well, what, yeah, Salton Sea is, is exactly. What yeah, it's like. a little bit further further away, but yes, the Salton Sea is very close by. Well, and so that's you know that's a you had said it's a powerful environmental stimulus there. Uh, right. You you really know about it by living in the area. Mm-hmm, it's terrible out here. And by the way, uh, John, I must ask, in comparison to the 
you know, the regular citizen out here in America, uh, I'm just curious how they compare to those in Canada in regards to COVID-19. Are they behaving in the same fashion as you see on television where you're at, uh, John? Um, yeah, I think to this question is, uh, you know, my, my, my simplest oversimplified assessment is that we're, we're a lot alike minus the riots. Oh, okay. The riots that colored Seattle and Portland uh, 2020 history never happened here. We had we had a we had a uh, determined protest community that was out regularly, and they're probably out, still out there. Uh, and and they're, they're, there's a lot of other issues up here, like pipelines and other problems that people are protesting vigorously. But uh, to that point, the, uh, the protest against um, protests against mask use, protests against vaccination. Uh, the, you know, there's 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 a deep uh, Pro- medical activists. There's some activism the going on. Yeah, Ch- challenge you know challenging these kinds of historically. So this is it's another you know chance to challenge you know vaccine and whatnot. Uh, so it's like that. But again, we you know, we haven't. I think that the social programs that the federal government initiated, as well as the provincial uh, programs that were initiated here and that are continuing, alleviated numerous issues that we would other face. In other words, Canada inherently. Uh, in it through its uh, through its design as, you know, as a federal entity is uh, has a safe social safety net built in. There's a very different kind of a vibe than um, necessarily what what everyone is experiencing in all the different U.S. states. Uh, if, you, if you know if we make comparisons in terms of federal spending yeah. to uh, support uh, small businesses and, and other interests, uh, grants to employers to hire and, and such. You know, just was it 80, 160 billion dollars or something that was that was made available this year? Just to support those things to make sure that people didn't fall through the safety net up here, and I know that folks in the states are still um, are still uh, appealing for 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 relief. There was a relief package uh, that was available at the beginning of the, uh, the events, but there's you know, there's the, the uh, I, I, you know the, the intense capitalism that and the uh, business opportunities in the United States had you know that that had I guess been construed as the safety net that there would always be a way to make money. You know, if you were there, it was such a dynamic economy, you could always always find a way to make money. Uh, up here, we don't promise that, and uh, it's a more it, it's more it's more socialistically um, uh, how to say it uh, conceived. Uh, you know, if we uh, people like me, uh, you know, get kind of tired of living in, in a in you know a, a less dynamic business environment and seek the excitement of. Do you want to come America. to America, John? I'm sorry. Do you want to come to America? Is that what you're telling me? Oh, I like doing business with, with America, <laughs> absolutely, and I like being there as a visitor. Yeah, I just never sealed the deal, you know. I, 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 uh, I have. I'm a reincarnated American. I like to. I like to joke, you know, that I, I have, I have uh, deep interest in in the in the uh, the fortunes of America, and uh, and I vibe very very strongly with a lot of the cultural and and intellectual things that that happen and that can only happen in America. So yeah, I love a lot of things about America. I'm a great fan and uh, supporter of, of all the good things that can happen there. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but I never, I thought, I, I guess I imagined as a younger man when I was, especially when I was riding the waves of the media that I could cut a deal and that CBS's law department would just sign me in with a green card or whatever to bring me into the country. That's why I thought that because that was the trend for folks in my peer group were Canadians who went to you know graduate school and all in the same period as me is that uh, they got hired, hired by U.S. companies, like big U.S. companies. So I'm, I come from a, you know, a talent pool and that was sort of, there was some expectation of that it didn't happen the way I, I foresaw, but um, you know, my my peers are are, are down there working in, in prominent positions all all around the U.S. because they they cut deals with you know major companies. It's hard for me to imagine that there are Canadians out there running around angry about wearing a mask. Well, uh, we're a very sensitive and intelligent group. We know that um, 
historically that freedoms that are taken by governments aren't easily returned. I mean, that's sort of a simple premise. We've lost, I know our freedoms have been suspended and there's been research, it was just published today, that worldwide everyone has, everyone in every country pretty well has been touched by this uh, loss of, uh, lots of loss of rights and freedoms has been a constraint that we've been living with. Uh, people here are protesting. My friends are concerned about it. You know, uh, I, I don't know what what you would need to see to be convinced that people here weren't concerned. To, to, be, honest with, to be honest with you, yes, I'm, I'm the, possibly one of the lesser uh, lesser excited people about some of these issues than, than than my Canadian peers were competing with Alex Jones and uh, sure. Bannon sure. for uh, top, you know, red metering uh, talk talking points. Right. <laughs> the, the reason why I say I say that is because. Every Canadian I ever met has always been super polite. That's <laughs> so I'm like, how, how yeah, can they be right? Our cultural veneer, it's true. <laughs> uh, but we, Canadians are Canadians are our dynamic force. Uh, you know, when called into when called to to action, we're famous fighters in, right. in you know That's all true. of our conflicts that we shared with with the American forces. So, so but are yeah, are we are we a little less excitable in, in some ways? Are, is our temperament different? Yeah, we have a different temper. We live in a colder climate, and maybe our cooler heads are helping us to prevail up here. I don't know. Well, out here, John, as you are well aware, people are angry. Absolutely. People are very angry. And uh, the last several days, it's been, what, 200,000 cases a day of COVID? The, the numbers are, are staggering. The situation hasn't improved, and I know people are tired of it, but the virus doesn't care about your feelings. It's just not going to go away if you close your eyes and pray it away. It just doesn't work that way. You know that, John. Well, yeah, like anything else, you know, there's denial, and then there's the risk of uh, losing what we, yogis call parallelism, which means that uh, through denial we get sort of touch with reality that we fall into danger, a different kind of danger. You know, through our through our uh, willing ignorance, we expose ourselves to further risk. So uh, when this when when all of this started, as much as I disliked what was going on. I made a point out of going out daily to investigate the neighborhoods that I was familiar with to see the see, to watch society change. Nice. And to to, mm -hmm. to attempt to ad, attempt to adapt to the changes, and that included eventually being uh, compelled to have to mask up to be in the store and all that kind of stuff. But I, you know, I was just forcing myself. I, I was forcing myself to um, to try to get get into the flow of whatever it was because. Uh, you know, hiding in a cave <laughs> and pretending nothing was happening was would absolutely be adverse to my interest. I had to do something. I had to, I, yeah. I had to be. I had to adapt. You know, adapt to survive. And that's what life is all about: adapting. Adapting, absolutely. The pressure to adapt is is an evolutionary force, and it's part of what made our ancestors more intelligent and come up with solutions that they would never have been compelled to come up with otherwise. You know, if, if life was all just about sitting around the sofa and watching television on reruns and eating popcorn. You know, none of us would be compelled to solve any problems out there. So, hey, I mean, John, I do know some people that sit around watching Seinfeld all day. <laughs> well, yeah, but is it making them more creative? Not at all. But well, actually, I take that back. They're on psychedelics, so yeah, they are kind of kind of creative. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why Seinfeld, but um, well, they are Jewish. But that's that's another episode. Um, another story. That's another story. But yes, um, John, I must ask you: Do you take a flu shot? Uh, I know I, I, I don't regularly uh, participate in that. Uh, I have my own uh, I have my own wellness uh, routine that I follow in the winter, but that's not one. Interesting. You see, in Canada, it may, this may be news for, for listeners, but you know, my, my, I was called to investigate this. Uh, there is no mandatory vaccine whatsoever in the whole of Canada, let alone mm. British Columbia, where I reside. We don't have mandatory vaccines here. What we are concerned about is as people on the street is that the corporations will seek to compel us 
to vaccinate in order as terms of usage of, of services. And we're not all exactly clear about this, uh, but like this, let's throw a hypo- hypothetical out there is that right. um, folks who don't vaccinate up may have to wear a mask in a hospital, for example, as an example of what may come up. And I think the reasonable comparison is, is that, you know, we have nuclear facilities up here like nuclear reactors. And I guess if you go into those facilities, you probably have to dress up a little bit in some safety gear. I mean, is that an unreasonable burden on those people because they're going into a you know facility where that's the standard? I don't think it's so unreasonable. So if that's the case, if I have to go, if I have want to visit someone in the hospital, I have to put on a little bit of extra stuff. It's the same to me as if I was in a biological research facility or a clean room at a manufacturer's, I would be following the rules. Understood, understood. I personally have never taken a flu shot at all. Throughout, even from like your youth and such, you were never forced to take those for school and so on? Never. Here we had to take rounds. I had to take I had to take the 1960s versions of what was being delivered, which is, of course, is like it's said to be about six times as many now, or some huge number of shots that kids are expected to take today. But I I took the what was expected, and I took what was required to travel out of country. Uh, you know, we had to get vaccinated vaccinated against uh, tropical diseases and that kind of thing as well. Did you Those take a pol- Did you take a polio shot? I don't know if I had that. I had. I had. I, I'm not going to really get into my medical history if that's what this show is about. But uh, you know, I, I would say as an average Canadian, I, well, there I, goes. I, you know, I had. There, there I mean, goes I thirty minutes of. Rhythms. Yeah, there goes thirty minutes of content. <laughs> this whole show was predicated on me. Yeah, just on you. My medical history. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, John, I must. I must add to this conversation. Some vaccines have um, proven safe and effective. But as you know, 50% of Americans will not be using the vaccine. And of course, the other half, they probably will be taking it. But speaking of the 50% that will be taking the vaccine, just keep in mind that only 50% of any vaccine is effective. So, you know, you're not really bulletproof. So, so yeah, getting down to reality, I think that our society is, is organized around issues like insurance and that insurers demand certain standards in order to allow people to open their places of business. And so without insurance, they can't operate. And so we're locked into concepts like vaccination in part due to their deep entrenchment in our, you know, the foundations of our economic systems and such. Uh, that's what seems to me is what's going on much more so than, you know, the idea that someone, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't mean to oversimplify, but it's kind of like someone sat down for a couple hours and, and just put, put a bunch of stuff together and put it in a vial and said, here's your vaccine. I mean, in terms of the duty to care that's going on here, in terms of the normal, Dr. Fauci quoted five-year uh, research period before they release anything to the, to the billions of people, uh, we're not looking at any of that here. So the medical expediency of what's being served is evident to thinking people. Uh, and uh, then, then we have to look at, what we have to look at then is those who are compelled through their employment or through uh, their contractual obligations to, to, to have to take the vaccine that's, right. that, that's demanded of them. Those will be our our frontline uh, military, uh, medical, those folks uh, due to the terms of employment. And it's their, if it's their duty to perform, they will have to do their duty. And we, we, we can only hope that the best for them that they get a good result. I am very concerned uh, as a non, as a lay person, I'm very concerned about the, um, the apparent uh, chaotic uh, approach to safety that's being practiced here. Uh, it's it's appalling to me, but because I live in Canada, sure. I don't feel compelled that I, I'm anyone's going to be forcing me to, t- to take this thing anytime soon. I'm gonna have I feel like I'm gonna have a, a just incredible amount of time to make a decision about relative safety questions here before I even get involved with questions of people telling me they're going to try and puncture my skin. Right, that's my feeling about it. And so, you know, the folks in part I'm informed by the learned folks in the United States who who, who have published on questions like this for for decades. 
without having been informed by the my, by courageous researchers who came before, and many who may have made mistakes along the way. But the, the, the fact that we had the freedom to talk about these questions, you know, is, provides a potential avenue to safety for some of us today. Right, I agree. And, and we didn't have a, mm -hmm. an existing culture and a, you know of alternative thinking and publishing. Uh, it, we would be a lot worse off uh, without it. I agree. And most people out there aren't even asking that question. How safe is this vaccine? Well, and so, you know, are vaccines good or bad? An effective vaccine that is that is safe and was properly careful, carefully uh, administered could be a great thing. You know, I'm not like I. So in other words, you know, I'm not like uh, I'm not fixed on this idea that vax equals evil. Yeah, you're not an anti-vaxxer. Right. Yeah, I, you know, I, 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 you know, any, anything done properly can be awesome. Sure. But, the, but I think the, the clear question here is that the rush, the rush order status of this is the first red flag. I mean, how many of us? Hey, let's go. When we do housing construction and build houses on rush orders, let's do that and see how long they stand up. Right. You know, let's, let's build cities on a rush order basis and see how long those last. <laughs> good. Yeah. Good point. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point there. And John, I must say, early on. Uh, when the outbreak was first starting to ramp up, I was telling people here that there will be mandated vaccinations for, you know, people on the front line, cops, firefighters, paramedics, those sort of folks with those gigs. And, you know, my audience thought I was smoking crack with uh, Mayor Rob Ford. They, they thought that was so far out, the, the notion that the military service folks and such would be demand, it would be demanded of them that they participated. Correct. In other words. Well, it's certainly, I, I would think if you would talk to folks in your local hospitals and stuff, they wouldn't have been confused about that. Well, it's the lack of common sense, my friend. Well, so it's an affront. You know, it's an affront to fo folks' sense of freedom and it, their innate sense of freedom. You know, we're, we're values, the deep values-based culture that people express in the United States uh, pertaining to freedoms, personal freedoms and choice and liberties and such. And, the, and, the, and the, even the notion that their ancestors moved there to, to get away from oppression you know, the, it, emotionally, this feels very oppressive. When I was a little boy, I, I didn't like getting injections. Me and a lot of other children were like that. We didn't right. like it. Uh, you know, we, uh, you know, there's a lot of things. There are a lot of things in life that we flinch at, and this, uh, this, uh, this whole process that we're going through collectively is, is you know, none of us would. I, I don't, I, very few of us would sign up to volunteer to live through these times, right? It's like, sure. You know, what's behind door number A? Is, you know, I'm glad you said pandemic. that. Let me just inter interject one second. I'm glad you said that. You know, early on, people were thinking that there would be some sort of baby boom going on right now, since we were all sequestered. Yeah. yeah. But we didn't see that. We we got the opposite. We got a high percentage of domestic violence cases. Are you talking California? Yes, specifically so, here. Domestic violence, divorce, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and uh, marriage counseling. All of these are, are, are big areas this year. Oh, yes. And COVID did not help, despite what some of the experts were predicting. Uh, in terms of uh, you know, growth of the family and getting yeah. people closer together. Well, it turns out, maybe, that a lot of us had unresolved issues, and those were exacerbated through uh, intimacy. Through persistent histamines, like, I just lost my job, now I'm home all day, and my partner's home all day, and now we're getting to know each other, and now it turns out that we aren't as compatible as we might have thought we were because we're only, we used to only see each other for 30 minutes a day. Can you believe that, John? There's some people out there that probably got a divorce, or they, um, either the guy or the um, woman, they probably struck each other at one time or another during this whole um, lockdown. Yeah, these are very severe problems. I mean, I, I work as a clinician, uh, so I'm, I'm very sensitive to uh, the... Uh, the level of, of danger uh, that already exists, uh, battered women's support services, and all of these other kinds of services, I, I think there's been a very intense demand on them uh, this year. 
By the way, in terms of the vaccine, Mexico also greenlit the Pfizer vaccine. And it's also quite strange to me that Mexico also bought the Chinese vaccine. Don't ask me why, because I have zero idea why they would acquire that one, but they did. Well, on the, on the Pfizer note, Canada accepted the Pfizer vaccine unconditionally, whereas in the United States, the FDA approved it for emergency use only, which is an interesting differentiation mm. for emergency use only. That, that yeah. was, this, this vaccine was not really embraced by the, FB, the FDA other than as a political expedient, it seems. But, but as you say, in Mexico, it seems they're running with it. In Canada, that they're running with it, too. Yeah, they're just going to go all out. Well, and so these these things will will uh, you know billions of people hypothetically are going to get vaccinated with the stuff, and uh, there's all kinds of uh, special medical effects, some of which may be health, and a whole bunch of other special ones that we don't, don't have a clue about may also manifest uh, through this. And it's you know this is the way it's going to this is the way uh, it is rolling. Now, folks are folks are uh, very concerned about this, but given the way our society is structured, unless uh, you know unless federal governments are stepping in. You know, to act against these things. Is it, well, these are federal initiatives. I guess the federal government signed on to it. Uh, I guess we're, you know our national patriotic duty is to is to is to, is to go with the flow, right? I mean, people can leave the country, but and go where? I mean, where where are we going to go where with can you go? COVID rule? You know, oppressing us nowadays. I think you know we're at a certain point. You know, we're we're, we're kind of in for a dime, in for a dollar with this. You know, I, I'm in. I, I'm here in Canada. I'm a Canadian. You know, I'm in it. I can't sort of like not you know be up here and you know sort of be half in and half out. I'm 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 in past my eyeballs and whatever you know whatever's coming up. I'm going to be here riding it. That's what I'm going to be dealing with. I don't have I don't have 100% control over everything in my life. I live in a society, you know, which means I'm answerable to others. I have to report to other people, and that reporting duty is an important part of uh, my uh, identity as a, as a person. Uh, that I'm I am responsible to others, not just you know thinking about myself. So. The, all these things, uh, we're gonna, I, I can't promise anybody, you know, and, and I have fears about what's coming in terms of the decisions that I've made so far on the, on, on the social level and the political levels about how to, how to deal with these problems. I, I uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just writing this thing out with everybody else at this point. Uh, but, it, but, but certainly I've, I've defined some positions. One is no rush to vax for me. Yes. Uh, and, uh, two is, uh, you know, economic return to economic stability with with uh, with sanity. You know, like finding a sane way to make a living under these conditions. These are, you know, there's a necessity that the economies continue to feed so the families can continue to eat. I mean, we can't. We we have so. In other words, I'm, I'm alluding to. We, there's a feeling of we, there's so much at risk right now. We have so much to lose, and as first world nations, it seems we've already lost quite a bit. You know, in terms of functioning economies at, at the consumer level, we had, uh, due to panic buying and other constraints, we had a shortage of basic consumer goods here in Canada. First time in my life I ever saw that. First world nation, typically the economy, you know, you don't have lineups to get into stores and stuff like that. You don't have rationing. of, of you, you see that World War II, World War One. That's about the only time you see that. Otherwise, you're called a failed economy. Isn't that what you have? You have Life magazine, pictures of the Soviet Union bread lines. Look at our failed economy in the Soviet Union. I was thinking that might so much better. I was thinking that might so, happen here in America. The return of bread lines. Well, it's here now. I mean, if we follow the news, that the the folks in in, I mean, you were watching. I was watching the news on bread lines this year, and I tell you, there were reports out of uh, out of North Texas lineups. I mean, of thousands of vehicles, folks, you know, to get access to to food for to feed their families. They, 
were serious, intense uh, local and regional socialism programs to keep Americans fed under the Trump administration. Uh, I called it Trump socialism, and I don't, I don't, con- I don't condemn anybody for feeding their family at all. Sure, I don't see anything wrong with feeding your family by any means, but that I was not fully aware of. So what I really mean to say is that we need to return to functioning economies and better improved versions of, of functioning economies. Uh, we, we have, we still have to solve that problem and solve the health problem. I'm not, I'm not like the the uh, folks in Texas who are calling for the, all the seniors to go out and, and sacrifice themselves for, you know, for the economy. I'm not talking like that at all. But I'm saying that we 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 cannot uh, allow that to collapse and expect that the future is going to be a, an improvement. You know, the, this, in other words, what we were talking earlier about the media's sway on our way of thinking. Uh, up here, I mean, every day, the, you know, the front page of every every day is, is COVID-19 and health, health, health. But um, without a functioning economy, uh, you know, folks, uh, you know, ramp, rampant unemployment and stuff, these are social ills. You know, everybody has to be everybody has to be f- fully realizing their potential. You know, these society, our societies have to provide opportunity for people to, to realize their full potential. That's the whole point of living here. Right. It's a very complicated year, to say the very least, and it's not even over yet. We still have a long way to go. Unfortunately, I I have concerns with holidays, with the holiday overseas uh, travel that's still going on, believe it or not. And of course, uh, most Europeans out there think they're in the clear, but uh, they will be hit with a dose of reality as well. You're going to see a huge surge of cases by Christmas, and uh, you can quote me on that one, uh, John. You're saying that this season is going to be a spreader season. Correct. You can you can definitely take it to the bank. You will see um, lots of death here in America, John. Well, I, I am so sad that you know that, that that I feel the same way about this, and that I I I have bought into the predictions of of half a million by Feb first and stuff like that. I've bought into that, and most most reliably because all of the blue sky predictions uh, never came to pass. So now I had to I had to buy into the notion of incomp- mass incompetence. It really hurts me to think like that. That you know that you know in the Bodhisattva vow, people talk about uh, the end of unnecessary suffering. That folks are supposed to seek out ways to, to mitigate unnecessary suffering. Suffering, and here it seems we've we've created circumstances somehow that folks are suffering on that scale, and uh, it's just it's super antagonistic. <laughs> it is. My goodness. Well, it's very antagonistic. You know, it's a, it's a terrible pallor. It's a deathly pallor has overcome us. You know, it's like a Vincent Price movie. It's the mask of the Red Death. You know, we all thought we were having a great time until, until we looked into the, the face of the guy who looked like us, and then we realized it was all over. <laughs> I just won't be taking this vaccine anytime soon, John, just like you. Yeah, I, I say you've got to hang in. You've got to watch and wait. And we don't know, I mean, as a layperson, I don't know actually how, how long it could take for uh, uh, side effects to manifest, but... Um, I, I, I uh, in spirit I, and, and in principle, I support the ethics of the of the folks who are compelled to take it as a term of their employment. I support those people to do their best. And I, but I, I wish I could say to them, and I thought that it was it was uh, it was uh, risk, you know, that they were being exposed to an ordinate risk. But I've read the Interpol warning, and I read the British MHRA warning. Interpol says the risk of tampering with these devices is high, high enough that they want to talk about it. In other words, if Pfizer is shipping. And they have custody of, of a bunch of vials, and somehow those are, vials are tampered with while it's in their custody. Well, they have liability. And 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 any word of this, any word of potential tampering and damaged goods, is, would typically, under most you know shipping arrangements, be grounds for refusal of shipment. But no one's addressing that. We're Canada's accepting Pfizer vaccines, even though they're coming with this warning that they're potentially tampered medicine. And British MHRA, who regulates uh, safety of devices and 
Medicines for the British government says that uh, they, they, they thought enough of it to, to, to issue a warning about uh, folks who have existing allergies or the risk of a, of a first-time allergic reaction uh, related to inducing epileptic-like seizures and stuff like that. So yeah. I thought that was a little outrageous. Uh, medical community folks tell me that all vaccines ha- have that level of risk, but the MHRA made a point of telling the world that it was, it was a problem. So I don't think that they, the MHRA was like a, a, a naif first-year organization that had never heard about this problem. I think they thought there was a serious problem, and that's why they published it. The Interpol, MHRA, I think those are two good standards. Until someone can give a reasonable answer to me, prove to me, show me a factory seal, non-tampered medicine, and, and further, show me that something that doesn't introduce epilepsy uh, you know, in people who are healthy, then uh, you know, maybe, maybe I think that was worth doing. And I'll say further to that. Given the, all the social pressure around this is that if the vaccine is in fact safe today and good for us today, well, guess what? It'll be just as safe and just as good for us when, whenever it is that we think we feel like we need to take it. How about that? Absolutely. You know, in other words, my acceptance of the vaccine is no evidence of its virtue or corruption. If yeah. I reject it, yeah. you know, if, if, if in fact it's good and I'm just, I'm just wrong, well, the facts will still be that it's good. So, so, you know, what's the big deal, right? What's the big deal? When I determine that it's safe, it will still be as good. Uh, unless, of course, it's no good to begin with. The issue with the vaccine, in my opinion, is the the, also, the simple fact that the virus has uh, mutated uh, time and time again. Hmm. So that kind of makes it a little bit difficult to come up with a tangible vaccine, even though the FDA, they claim this is 95% effective. Well, and so... As you said, there, there, these were early, there were early discussions uh, when vaccination became uh, part of the discourse that the uh, question you just raised w- would be an important consideration. So, we, again, this looks more like a political expedient because they can say they made a vaccine as opposed to something that is actually tracking, tracking the, uh, the predatory uh, pathogen. Because, as you say, if it's mutating, then you're, what you're treating is the earlier generation Right? You're right. not treating the current generation. You're treating some iteration from, from the way back. But you can call it a vaccine in our society, and the, you know, the government will green light that and buy a bunch of it from And you can still get infected again. There's been, well, there it's go. already been recorded that people have been reinfected after contracting the virus and being allegedly, uh, I guess, cured or, or treated. Safe. And so, so, so then is this, is this really immunodeficiency? And are people's lifestyles contributing to immunodeficiency? Uh, there were certainly uh, questions related to uh, uh, morbid obesity and its effect on people's ability to respond to these kinds of uh, stimulants. So these kinds of questions arise that are, is our lifestyle healthy enough to sustain us is one of the questions that, that came up. I made some small changes up here. I started, uh, you know, people might think is daft. I started uh, colloid- started on a colloidal silver regimen. I had, I had bought the equipment uh, decades ago from a, a company in Southern California and, and I started it up again. Because I was able to read at the National Institutes of Health that uh, these ionic silver and zinc are both effective against uh, bacteria and bacteriophage viruses. It's not a specific to COVID-19, but uh, it is a bacteriophage. So I, I'm, I'm, dealing with, I'm treating the right class of pathogens uh, with that regularly. I wasn't on that regimen the year before. I, I had the equipment from decades ago, but I, I tell you, I, I sure drank a lot of the ionic silver this year. Nice. And so, yeah, I was I was a little concerned, you know, is my skin changing color? What, right? But I think it uh, it was it was my first level. It was my first layer of defense before masking became a mandatory thing in this city. I was I was on silver almost right away, and uh, I, I think it uh, I think it decreased my bacterial load. 
which uh, assisted my immune uh, system uh, to be ready to take on other loads as they arose, rather than being burdened by, you know, what they call underlying uh, or you know other conditions, and then and then encountering a virus, I would be uh, I'd be more resilient if I had to face them. So. That, that that you know that, that's my simple simple remedy and my, and my simple philosophy about this is again is that people are living healthy lifestyles those healthy lifestyles preclude exposure to uh to disease causing conditions so you know maybe that you know, i'm a little fussy right i'm a vegetarian yogi right so right I, I follow a fair number of rules and folks who are interested in like rules-based living you know maybe receiving a lot of benefits from that that aren't that the mainstream population isn't getting and I say, I say to you, one of my two of my considerations at the in, in the spring when this uh, health question arose were that uh, folks were spending their days in air-conditioned environments. One, uh, which meant that they weren't developing the kind of resilience to that li- living outside would bring. And two, is as more about obesity as as, as vectors uh, for disease that were already existing that the population would not necessarily be as strong. One of the questions that we haven't discussed is uh, why is it that when we had like Asian flu in the 1960s. And other kinds of conditions that, that you know, pandemic conditions, global pandemics that arose. I, I was in school back then, and we never had to stay home. And there were, and a couple of people died up here in 1968 or 69 from that. But nothing, nothing. Society didn't come to a grinding halt. So, is the is it the case, in other words, that uh, 50 years ago we were healthier, we were a healthier society than we are today? We were less susceptible to this type of disease than we are today. I would say, yeah, we were probably a lot healthier back then than we are today that's for sure we didn't have so, the level of products I, yeah. to um consume i would say in terms of what we put in our our stomachs in terms of the types of f- foods that we eat and processed foods so yeah. if we go further and further back to our agrarian ancestors you know pre-industrial revolution they're living outdoors you know they're eating the food from the field uh it's it seems maybe they had their bot their immune systems were more engaged in their day-to-day experience than our high-tech and urban lifestyles have allowed us to have here maybe we've sold ourselves short on some of the the good things uh, about our potential that our ancestors were more able to readily realize than we do now and to pretty much wrap up here in terms of the vaccine i just want to add that i really don't want uh, to deal with fatigue or aches or bell's palsy or seizures or even dying from taking the shot by the way I agree with you. I support you in that. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not ready, ready to expose myself to that level of risk, and I don't see that. No, there's been no reasonable argument that says that I have to do it. Up here, the media, coming from the federal government through the national broadcaster here, is all about today. The message is, if we tell each other stories about taking the vaccine, we'll feel better about it. That's that's what we're getting from our national broadcaster. Up that's here. right. So I say uh, that you know this is social uh, coercion, right? Social social pressure was never has never in history been a good reason to make medical decisions, and and certainly not now. Oh right, over three thousand deaths, by the way, more than nine eleven or Pearl Harbor per day now per, per day. day loss, and so this is horrible. Yeah. This horrible sense of loss. Uh, you know, it's like it's like we've lost a whole city full of people uh, in, in one shot. It's a it's just it's it's unimaginable, and in part, I think our response to it is shock and denial because the level of tragedy is 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 a little bit incomprehensible. The, the levels of death are just a little bit beyond us. We're kind of, we're as a society, it's sort of like we're in a post-traumatic stress, uh, you know, deer in the headlights kind of a phase uh, in large numbers. We're having trouble keeping up with what's happening, and we're having trouble making effective decisions, and that's that is actually 
that that our quality of decision making, et cetera, is going down day to day. The longer we we, we try to live under these conditions, there's, there's something called isolation fa- fatigue related to uh, lockdown or uh, what do they call it, solitary confinement. That's right. Some people feel that way, and of course we have to think about the mental health of many of those individuals out there who are struggling just to survive. Certainly. And so right. as, you, as you had mentioned earlier, in families, families are seeing that amongst themselves, that uh, quality of decision-making in terms of interpersonal relationships is deteriorating and it's, it, relationships are devolving into fights. Good times all around, right? The fun never stops. A man loses his job, he loses his dignity, he loses his self-esteem, then he loses his wife. The joys of life. Well, and so, yeah, this is, you know, we're, we're getting our, we got, we got the 1930s depression, we've got the uh, Spanish flu and, uh, and the 1968 Watts riots all, all at once. It's a great time to be alive. It's quite entertaining as, as long as you can survive it, I say. If you can survive these times, these are you, awesome can do, times. you can handle this better. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. And as I was mentioning earlier, John, lots of people are pissed off. And this is probably one of the angriest people I've ever come across. His name is Stuart Rhodes of Oath Keepers. Uh, he says uh, he's calling for Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act to prevent Biden from taking office. There may be the outgoing president uh, still has cards in his hand and there may be some uh, special moves uh, that could include all kinds of outrageous outcomes uh, that, you know, many of us may not want to see. And, and so uh, people have people have a lot of Trump fatigue, but I'm I'm certainly willing to pay attention to President Trump's decision making over the next 40 days uh, until he leaves the office, because I believe that the the powers of the president are so great that uh, he can unleash all kinds of uh, outlandish uh, scenarios uh, that would change would change society, you know, in severe ways. I, I I'm very afraid and concerned about it. Nothing I can do about it, but. I'm certainly, I'm certainly not going to stop paying attention to President Trump until, uh, until his term ends. And here is that clip of our, of our friend, Mr. Stuart Rhodes. Um, John, here we go. It's about a minute and seven minutes long. That's, uh, seven minutes? I mean, I mean seven. seven seconds. Sorry about that. Thank you for catching that. All right, here we go, John. All the files, all the databases, and he's a Assange, and put him in stock. That's kind of low, isn't it? From my end, it is. I can hear it, but uh, let me turn that up for you. Yeah, let me let me play that back. That was kind of low. Let's see if I could get that going here. Um, go see all the files, all the databases, and he's a sponge and put him in charge of doing a data dump. Play to all of you, all the skeletons that closet. Yeah, this is um kind of low here. and then section act drop the hammer on them. And all of us veterans who swore that oath until you're... I'm going to have to try to find a better clip of that. Yeah, that um, the audio is super low for whatever reason. I mean, I could hear it on my side, and I respect that, you know, this is one of these scenarios. There are many folks emerging as public speakers in this year, and uh, one of the great American traditions that I used to enjoy watching when, uh, whenever Muhammad Ali was on the microphone, called grandstanding. And By the way, now... Everyone mm-hmm. is, is, is grandstanding their hardest right now to be appear prominent. But I say to you, you know, that big big speeches are uh, are super duper. But unless you can get uh, you know uh, Attorney General Barr or Supreme Court of the United States involved, uh, none of this has any traction whatsoever. So you know, at a certain point, you know, 
free speech, the culture that, of free speech that, that invites folks to get up on the, on the soapbox and, and, and tell the world their feelings and opinions is a valuable thing. But uh, I don't necessarily think that uh, just because Rush Limbaugh you know, has the golden microphone that uh, every word is, is something I need to hang on to either, right? Right. Well, so, so again, I respect that, uh, you know, the culture of, you know, the voice of the people, the people are, 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 are exercising their rights to, to speak. But I, I, unless, unless you get some traction in court with your uh, 50 lawsuits, uh, I think you're incompetent. I mean, what do you want me to say, right? It's great free speech. It's great entertainment. I love Muhammad Ali telling me he's the greatest. I would never dispute him on that. I'm with you on that one, 100%. And by the way, the listeners claim that they were able to hear that, so... As long as they were able to hear that short clip there, we are good. And that brings us to another clip from our friend, Deanna Lorraine. Apparently, she is a host on InfoWars. I see. I think she might be having some sort of relationship with Alex Jones, from what I read. But I don't know. That's just the rumor. I can't confirm or deny that. I don't know if you've heard anything, but that's what I've read. I no, that that Alex Jones has has human relations. <laughs> you could ask his ex-wife about that. That's true. She had quite a lot to say. You're familiar with their settlement and, her, and their disputes in court? S- somewhat. Very vague. But yes, I, it was a bit of a nasty toss-up from what I recall. And I think he kept a good good amount of that money. Well, his enterprise is, it continues to go. I mean, uh, I, I don't, he must have you know, burned and churned through a lot of supporters over the years. But he sure. has a power, is a powerful enterprise today. Oh, no doubt. The guy owns like two mansions, I believe, or did. Well, I, I, some people think he's, you know, he, he's the uh, he's a disappeared comedian reinvented as Alex Jones. <laughs> you know, Alex Jones is a persona and that really he's uh, Bill, uh, an American comedian from the 1990s. Bill Hicks. Uh, yeah, Bill Hicks, yeah, Bill Hicks. <laughs> I don't think I don't so at all. Alex, yeah. Alex Jones excited a lot of us with his Bohemian Grove tapes right. back in the day. And then folks uh, started to question how was it that he even got on site and was able to do all that without actually being, you know, part of the, part of the operation, right? But, uh, you know, in terms of creating exciting media, Alex Jones created a lot of exciting media. Sure, and, sure. Um, he made himself rich through the course of it. But I think uh, a personality like that also burns and churns through people because, you know, using people as props is also a big part of our culture, right? Well, he started to try to live the gimmick, and that's where he went wrong. Tell me more. What do you mean? Well, you know, he put up this facade, and now he's kind of like, uh, you know, he's sort of a victim of that. He sort of has to play that role now, 24-7. Uh, so he, he be, so unless uh, your persona is someone that you can actually be, shouldn't try to be that persona. <laughs> Most likely, yeah. I mean, if you're going to paint yourself in one way, your, people are going to expect you to be that all the, the whole time. I that, mean, that's his brand. Yeah, just look at all the people out there who come up to, um, I was trying to think of an actor who's known for like a role that he's always playing. Let, let's say like um, Seth Rogen. Oh, Seth Rogen. Yeah, he plays the same guy in every movie. Right. You know. He became his own stereotype. Correct. He typecasted himself. Typecasted himself. As like a stoner in a movie and he just plays himself. Well, there you go. I mean, this is this is this is this bind. You know, it, it was it was his path to fame and fortune, inventing that persona. But at the same time, as you say, it also becomes a prison. You know, the thing that the, 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 all the all the thing, but everything like what I get what I get to is that everything here is like that. Sure. You know, all the, the, our our material pursuits will also bind us. You know, we have to follow the rules if we want to fly on the airplane. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, it, it doesn't. If I want to know the secrets of what the president is saying. I, I have to accept the burden of responsibility of that knowledge. There's no way out of it. Uh, yep. So everything, in other words, 
you know, all, all of our, that's what the yogis say that the best thing to do is that our, our material actions are for service, you know, to support communities and societies to succeed and not just for our selfish interests because we'll get more out of achieving and succeeding together than we will when we when we're just like the bitter man in, in the top of the penthouse there with his own locked into his own uh it was a film with a de niro and uh, jerry lewis a king of comedy did you ever see that i believe Wait, yes that. yeah that's a old school one and so back at like 1980 and so jerry lewis is uh is, is johnny carson he's the you know he's, he's the top of the the tonight show uh, late night television that's talk. from 1982 by the way 82. There you go. And, and, uh, and at the same time, it's kind of like it's, it's his prison. And uh, so this is, you know, this is, it's, it's a condition of life. It's not only Alex Jones who, uh, who found this out, but uh, all of us in our own way, uh, you, know, the, you know, whatever decisions I made 20 years ago, and public decisions particularly, defined my brand, you know, to the public. Correct. And uh, so, uh, you know, like we, when we spend mm-hmm. our currency, we, we want to feel that we made a good investment. If we, we feel like we frittered away the currency that life gave us, we'll have lots of regrets. But if we spend wisely, make a good investment, then we'll, we'll be enjoying the, you know, we'll enjoy the fruits of the harvest later. Uh, if Alex doesn't like, you know, his material, uh, he doesn't like his niche, you know, if he wishes he was in horticulture instead of uh, conspiracy, uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 could, it could be kind of a hurting situation. I think Joe Rogan has a bit more of a... Uh, 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 a balanced uh, position, you know, where he can play in a whole bunch of areas without appearing like an ex- overly extreme. And has very popular. He's a very popular broadcaster in his own right. Alex uh, bullhorned his way into the public uh, imagination, and I guess you know he'll always be there, you know, bullhorning. That's that's going to be his brand. That's very true. And another good comparison to make, and everyone can sort of uh, relate to this. This will resonate with everyone. Uh, John, you know, you have people in your life, people that have known you forever. They want to remember you a certain way. And in their heads, they do remember you a certain way. It's like they want you to be that character uh, from the TV show Cheers. Oh, yeah. Well, you that's know, what I'm trying family, to say. They, yeah. they, they, they remembered you as a kid and they want you, they want that kid brother again. right? That's how people see <laughs> Alex Jones as well. You know, they see him as that guy. People want you to stay in that character forever. They don't expect you to evolve. So this is very interesting to, to your point because I I, I think I I uh, conspired to break molds myself. Yeah. To protect myself sure. against against that kind of. Uh, you want to prevent from ha- that happening to you? Yes. So I, in other words, I I publicly got involved in other fields beyond my speech research, which is what made me famous. And uh, it you know there was I, I you know people there were certainly people who wanted me to stay in my own lane, right? But, <laughs> sure, uh, sure. I, but I insisted, you know, that I had I could I could offer value to other communities like like UFO or paranormal and as a therapist as well. And so uh, you're a man of many hats. Yeah, I'm wearing many hats, and I think I think it serves me better as as a human being to be a to be able to participate in more than one way in society and not be not just be compelled to only one role, but rather to be uh, to, to you know full participation and full uh, full realization uh, as a person. I, Never limit not, yourself, John. I'm sorry? Never limit yourself. Never limit yourself. Well, Never limit your abilities. Limit yourself. Limit. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Limit. Exactly. Don't impose self-limits. Just other people. So there's always someone else who's ready to do it for you. <laughs> that's true. And that's always, the, yeah. you know, that's always a fun way to let other people run with any sort of narrative. Other people. It's always going to come down to other people's perception of you anyways. Other people's perceptions. Well, I, if I care about my relationships with other people, I don't want to disturb them unnecessarily. No reason to I, uh, walk on eggshells. You might as well just dance on eggshells, my friend. Well, it's sort of like this. After the initial shock, you know, people go to sleep and they wake up the next morning as if nothing happened. That's that's what life is really like. And, and sure. if we are, 
you know, if we're all too delicate, nothing will ever get done. Uh, I'm certainly, I'm not, I'm not delicate when it comes down. <laughs> I'm pretty forcible in insisting and in insisting on imposing my way if I can. <laughs> but uh, yeah, to, to the point, uh, you know, there's, if we care about our relationship with other people, we'll make sure that we conduct ourselves, we, we work towards our goals in ways that support other people achieving their goals at the same time, rather than destructively attempting to achieve our goals, you know, at the expense of everything and everybody, right? Trail of bodies left in our wake, uh, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins and the Jeffrey Epsteins, right? Is man better at creating or destructing, or better at a destruction, rather? Uh, better at, uh, well, no, I think that man is made uh, to, to, for much higher things, although destruction may be a necessary part of getting creation to happen. You, you know, you have to, you want to make a building, you got to lay down the foundation, you got to dig a hole. You know, didn't Absolutely. Hole there. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, the use of force isn't necessarily, uh, you, we try to moralize it, but I say use of force uh, can be very ethical. There's lots of ethical reasons to apply force in life, you know, to to get ourselves to get up out of bed in the morning to go to work or get off the couch and go out and do something, right? It's, it takes force to do all these things. If we're if we're apathetic and we're unwilling to exercise our our individual initiative, you know, someone else is going to exercise it for us, right? So it's a, we are called uh, we are called upon to to make the to make the most of ourselves and become the best that we can be. But we're bringing the most. If we, you know, if we care again, if we care that we're bringing the most to every situation with the people and the situations we care about. Yes. And before we go back to our friend, Deanna Lorraine, and uh, listen to what she has to say, um, you were mentioning Alex Jones and uh, Joe Rogan. By the way, Howard Stern made the uh, news once again by re-signing. Did you see that? Did uh, he re-upped his contract with Sirius? Yeah, or? he re-signed for another five years. Well, this guy is just, uh, you know, he's going out with, with he, you know, the whole U.S. economy has gone into his pocket. Is he? And this guy's just incredibly rich at the, at the at this at this you know this late time in his career. He's he's cashed in. It's an amazing career. It really is, and I, you know, I, I give him all the respect in the world. Sixty-six years old, he's been in it for so long. I think I don't I don't exactly know how much he signed for, but it might be like 120 million a year. It's just huge money, and I don't know if he's still doing television, but Good he had Lord. a lot of television money from Idol and those other those types of programs. So this guy is a very very celebrated, and this is a cat. If you look back twenty, thirty years, you know the kind of uh, topics that he was covering uh, were. Uh, you know, really, really adult territory. Really right? good. This was, not, this was not Mr. Rogers. This, this, you know, this is it, this is someone. This is a this is the rock and roll of talk radio we're talking about here, right? Right. So uh, that you know that he had that lifestyle, that he partied with all those celebrities, and he lived this long, and he 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 had those books and films, all this stuff he sold. You know, it was just the guy's destiny. He was born, talk about right place, right time, right person. He yeah, had, he the had right time. He, mm -hmm. he, but he he had to struggle, right? He had to struggle. The word is, you know, he was living out the back of the station wagon and all the things he did when he was starting. So if he didn't have the courage, you know, to go through that, it would never have happened. Uh, what can I say? Uh, you know, talking about American radio success story in terms of the, the money and the business, certainly in terms of a lot of the decision making that he made, the program decisions that they made, I would have uh, been out of there so fast. I wouldn't have, I would not have made a, a Howard Stern career. There's no way. That's crazy. But, uh, yeah. But, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed, I laughed a lot, uh, you know, some of that program for sure. You know, me and a lot of other people laughed. So uh, what can I say? I, enjoy, I like, I like to laugh. He still, like he still laugh. runs a pretty good show, in my opinion. Lots of people trash him for what. He's sort of evolved into now. They say he's kind of turned into Don Imus, but I, I disagree. I don't think he's turned into Don Imus at all. He's just, you know, evolved. He got older. Of course, he's not going to always talk about the same things that he was talking about 20 years ago. I mean, 
Who really he, he would be? That, he, he said in one interview in the last ten years that he regretted he regretted some of the things that he had done. Uh, he, he he wanted he, he he would prefer you know to have a softer approach to some people and issues that than sure, he had necessarily sure. been called to in the past. Commercial pressures you know made him do a lot of the things that he did too. Well, you have to be shocking, especially on the radio, to uh, to obtain that sort of attention. Uh, it's very well, difficult to do, especially in in a car. And he's someone who was able to, able to um, hold an audience. While you were in a car, I think something like 20, 30 minutes straight or maybe even an hour. I'm not quite sure I recall the correct number, but that's insanely impossible to do. Uh, yeah, it is very difficult. And that's why my career was so successful, because I, I had those kinds of numbers. Yeah, yeah, you you had success, money. so you know what, what that's like to have that sort of retention from an audience. It, it means a lot if you could hold an audience for more than 10, 15 minutes, especially while someone's in their car. Time spent listening is the big metric, and radio producers and, and show hosts never stop talking to me about the, t the TSL numbers on my appearances. There you go. There you so go. So I don't have, you know, I don't have, I'm not Howard Stern. I don't have Howard's millions. I'm no one is. Like Howard. I don't think anyone you know, would be Howard I, Stern. I, but I, I have the industry ratings. <laughs> but you did good, though. You did really good for yourself. You had a great run. And, you know, and it was, you know, I, I was invited to the party, and, uh, you know, it was a, it was a socially... Uh, it was a free-flowing time, and uh, I, I free-flowed as much as, as people could tolerate. Love that. But I'm glad you could look back and have some joy in it. Some people just, you know, re regret everything. Well, a lot of people go through a lot of heavy things. I think that I was, you know, I was uh, kept out of a lot of heavier situations, uh, business or political dealings. By circumstances, I was, you know, somewhat sheltered in a way, uh, because most of my time I was just a guest. So I did, in other words... With an opportunity for me to get into a, I didn't have a lot of bad dealings or bad, uh, you know, bad medicine, bad chemistry between me and people. Not a lot of that uh, really happened, but it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. People make mistakes. People want to be famous. People become addicted to fame. All kinds of, you know, being a celebrity is is is, is hard work. You know, it's not uh, oh, yeah. it's psychological demands and all kinds of problems. Not everyone's cut out for it. But a great, a great celebrity can be an inspirational figure. And uh, sure. you know, the State Department treats them like ambassadors. The, the America sends its uh, its top media people and, and, and performers all over the world, right? Show this business is, representing is the American yeah. brand. Show business is not for everyone. You know, you, you know not everyone's got out for it. And uh, yeah. that's not just the talent part. It's the, you know, the character and the, have the, uh, drive. the perseverance, mm -hmm. the drive, the perseverance, the perspicacity, uh, the perspicacity, you know, you gotta, you gotta know everything. Perspicacity. Yeah. Well, so yeah, the, the demands for a talker, a morning show talker, you know, you got to be up, you got to be up three in the morning developing your stories. So at five in the morning, you're on the air, and then you got to you got to burn through that. You got your callers, and you got your you got your uh, production people screaming at you, and you got to go into a meeting with the boss after the show, and you got to renegotiate contracts and salaries, and you know, so you're running. It, it's a lot of hats, it's like being a chef in a restaurant, right? It's a it's a it's a it's do all kinds of shit. Yeah, yeah, do all kinds of preparation, and um, now we we can go back into our our friend Deanna. Lorraine now, the right. future Miss Alex Jones. <laughs> I think. I, well, I could be wrong. It's He's just a rumor. That's what you're saying? Yes. It's just a rumor. I don't know if he, you know, hooked up with her and gave her a show. I don't know that. I'm just assuming that. Major difference. No casting couch over at the Alex Jones show. I, well, I would hope not. Harvey Weinstein is turning in his jail cell. <laughs> Love that. Here we go. Uh-oh. Are we not getting audio? He's talking about Trump supporters. I have no idea if anyone can hear this. Courage and wisdom, and, and throw the republic under the bus. I'm, I'm listening. Oh, you can hear this, okay. Uh, American patients are, are 
American patriots are not going to stand for it. I, I guess there was dead air right there, according to the listeners. I'm not sure why uh, the audio is not being sent out. We, we had some audio problems earlier tonight, so yeah, we're we a little par for the course. Uh, but to the, uh, Americans are concerned because they're not seeing the future that they recognize or that they identify with in, in the events that are occurring in their own country. They I think you alienated. I think you broke it, John. They feel alienated by what they see <laughs> happening in their country. Uh, you know, I could say, well, uh, the justice system is fair and impartial. And, uh, you know, if people don't have faith in the pillars of their of their government, uh, you know, they, they got to have some faith, too. Right. I mean, a lot of the right wingers uh, say, you know, trust the plan, stay with the plan. Well, what do they mean? They say keep the faith. That's what they're saying. Keep the faith. Well, have people lost their faith? I mean, is this the first time this country ever had a democratically oriented election? Uh, I don't think so. Is there going to be another one? I hope, hope there will be, just like there was, you know, four years ago. Uh, lots of lots of lots of chance and opportunity in America. That was that was the message in the past. So, is it that people have lost their dream and vision and hope for life in that country, and they're saying that there is no hope no more? I, I feel my life is hopeless. I feel I have no sense of direction. I, I have no I have no sense of identification with going. I feel alienated in my own country. It kind of sounds like they're saying that. And I tell you what, as a therapist, kind of a big boys pants situation. You know, big girls and big boys right now. Like we're, we're going to have to step up, strap up, you know, figure out what country we're living in and what we're ready to sign up for and get on with get on with what needs to be done with the rest of living or else, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to make some big adult decisions here. I don't know what to say. It's just, you, got, you got a fair and impartial justice system. These are supposed to be patriots and they, they don't they don't have faith in that. I, I don't understand that. It's irrational to me. You know, grandstanding is good. Free speech is good. Those folks, if they don't have any traction in the courts, then maybe they need to find a new career. I don't know what to say. You, you know, I, if I want to run around talking about legal infractions on the streets and, and get everyone excited listening right. to me, uh, you know, and then I go in front of the judge and say, actually, this isn't, isn't about fraud at all. Uh, is anyone going to think I'm credible? So, you know, my, free speech is great. But my tolerance, my tolerance is 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 also limited. And as a therapist, if that was my client coming in and they were they were on they were on sort of like a, a zombie mode of, of you know of uh, complaints. You know that, that I, I would be excited to, to to arouse them from that state. You know to get to get a grip on something practical and, and, and run with that rather than uh, uh, seeking you know seeking a seeking to make a, a, a some kind of proclamation every five minutes about about their their you know their their hurt feelings. I really don't know what to say. You got one president. You got a, you got a Supreme Court. You got you know you got your Congress. You got your whole system there, and it's been running you know good, bad, or ugly. It's been running for a long time. And now people are saying they have no faith in it. Well, I guess those people better come up with a different system and propose, pitch that to the people and, and let the people make a decision based on that proposal. I don't know what else to say. They got no, they got no solution, and all they're doing is complaining. That's, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't hear a solution. I hear a lot of complaining. As a therapist, I, I'm not impressed. Understood. Understood. But yes, that's the sort of thing that's going on right now in America. As you know, lots of people feel exactly the way she does. Mm-hmm. And so we get stuck in our feelings sometimes. And as adults, we're responsible for our emotions. And I'm going to speak to this point further. I'm going to raise another point that's become clear to me in light of what you're saying, is that it seems a lot of us adults right now are, are, are confronting very difficult emotions, and we feel that we don't have the skills to manage what's coming up for us right now. And so one of our strategies for dealing with that is denial, and another one's called projection. We're talking about demonizing. That's in, in psychological terms, that's construed as projection where we, our, our fears and things that we can't deal with about ourselves, we would rather project those onto others. You know, we, we don't want to deal with, we don't want to take responsibility for our own emotional lives. And this is a, this is a, a fail from a, from a therapeutic point of view that adults don't 
uh, either have the education skills or resources to assemble their own emotional integrity and instead choose to, you know, to, to find others to uh, focus on and somehow project onto all their, their toxic feelings and all this kind of stuff. I, 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 you're probably hearing that. I don't have a lot of respect for, for situations where folks aren't enabled to, to manage their own emotional lives. But that's a lot of what I'm seeing is that folks appear to be dealing with or attempting to deal with very difficult emotions, and they're not having any success, and they're, they're, they're not doing very well with that. So what are their options? They'll find a competent therapist that they can trust who reads some books on self-help, care enough about themselves to manage their emotions, care enough about their families and the people around them to get their emotions emotionalized together. Uh, that's all I can really say at this point. Uh, folks are, are dealing with difficult emotions, and a lot of what we're seeing in the grandstanding are people expressing that they don't know how to handle the difficult emotions that they're feeling. And they're giving, they're giving expression to this through various uh, claims, many of which are entirely irrational, and which the courts are striking down as irrational. Uh, so what it really is telling us is just all, they're languaging, they're emotionalized, but, and they don't even understand that. We don't even understand ourselves, but we want to tell everyone else how to, how to do everything. I think that's a serious problem. I think it's a call to self-awareness, call to, to awakening. It's a call also to care. I mean, if we care about our society, we're going to make, we're going to make resources available to help each other so that folks aren't st- stuck. You know, uh, you know, like we have a society, you know, we're, we're, people like me are so stubborn, you know, folks are still fighting, people are still fighting over who ruled one World War II right now. You That's know true. What I mean? like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, you know, this kind of stubbornness and all this, this kind of stuff is in our temperament for sure. But uh, if we care about our society and we want everyone to, to, to make it to the next, the next uh, experience together, then we do our best to help each other. And part of that is going to be uh, getting people to, you know, uh, having a little wake-up call to uh, big, big boys and big girls uh, are, are welcome, right? Uh, the rest of this, if folks are just standing there, standing there whining, complaining, it's, it's not productive. It's not solution-providing. It's just, uh, you know, they, they feel like they're giving some free speech. Uh, God bless them, but uh, yeah. I don't see any solutions coming from that. Crying gets you nowhere in life. That's what I've learned. Right. You know, there's time for tears and then there's time for action, and uh, we shouldn't prolong the the tears part. We should get we should get onto a good plan. You know, we should identify a good plan, and all of us getting onto that together and working together. And like, how about you know, working together as a nation and all that kind of stuff, and feeling like we're all part of something that's a positive, creating a positive future. Like, you know, we I think we some of us used to feel optimistic, right? That what, what was happening here was creating a better future for everybody. And I I want to see more of that. That's what, I believe we can do it. I want to see more of that. I know it sounds people may think I'm just trivializing. All of the all of the resentment and, as you said, the anger and all the deep feelings. But uh, I'm I'm a professional therapist with over 20 years of clinical practice. I'm recognized by state uh, mental health coalition leaders. I'm recognized by, you know, uh, people holding advanced degrees. I mean, I, I have insight into these questions, and I say to you, without m- people having success in managing their emotional lives, they're not going to be happy with anything. So we, the, the the feeling of conflict that's arising in part is uh, is this is just pure emotion because if if it was if it was not emotion then what these people would make, first of all what people were saying would make sense you know there's not, if you try to transcribe these speeches that people are giving how much continuity is there from sentence to sentence well it's irrational what's going on is irrational behavior they're emotionalizing and what's worse is that their peers are they're so naive as adults they don't have the skills to manage their own emotions and that's you know I I, I don't take I don't take any pleasure in people not succeeding uh, you know I, I support people succeeding in this I, I want I want people to succeed so that's all I can really say manage your emotions succeed in life love that and of course there's another individual out there who is quite emotional and her name is Paula White are you familiar with our friend Paula White here well is Paula this is the spiritual advisor of the president who it sure is yeah, it was very famous, and uh, you know, one of the, 
one of the fabulous grandstanders of our times. Bring her on. <laughs> <laughs> well, here is a very interesting clip that I like playing. I'll play this for you, John. And strike 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 until you have victory for every enemy that is aligned against you. Let there be that we would strike the ground for you will give us victory, God. I hear a sound of abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of shouting and singing. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. The Lord says it is done. The Lord says it is done. For I hear victory, 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 victory in the quarters of heaven. In the quarters of heaven. Victory, 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 victory. For angels are being released right now. Angels are being dispatched right now. Hamanda ata ata rata teda baka sanda ata ambo osa tata rite eke banda ata rite didi ashata. For angels have even been dispatched from Africa right now. Africa right now. Africa right now. From Africa right now. They're coming here. They're coming here. In the name of Jesus from South America. They're coming here. They're coming here. They're coming here. They're coming here. From Africa. From South America. Angelic forces. Angelic reinforcement. Angelic reinforcement. Angelic reinforcement. Oh my God. For I hear the sound of victory. I hear oh, my, I have to shut her up there, John. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, John, what, well, what's going on there? What, tell me what's going on in, in your, your first initial reactions to just hearing this. What goes through your head? Clearly, this is an appeal for immigrants from Africa and South America to come to America and clean up America's political problems. That's, she's calling for immigrants. There's no doubt in my mind. Africa, Brazil. South America, it's, they're coming here. They're coming here. I mean, she's saying this. She's to better America. Immigrants to come to America. Oh, my. I mean, it's clear to me. I, I, can't, I can't interpret that any other way because all of this sort of appeal to faith, I mean, people pray, but it's as if God is ignorant because, uh, you know, God needs us to tell God what's going on because God doesn't know, have a clue what's going on. That's, you know, this whole premise to me is, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a praying kind of a guy. I'm, I'm shocked. We meditate, on, we, we meditate. We believe in God, but we don't. Our, our relationship with God isn't a beggar. You're not speaking and in this, tongues, in other words. Yeah, this, this, you know, the, the, she's giving full expression to this external form of ritual, which in which, and and this is very interesting to our earlier discussions about shamanism and medicine, people in primitive societies, because she's emulating the um, the ritualistic trance-like behavior of of a, of a Stone Age uh, medicine person through her incantation and the and the rhythmic incantation. The a medicine woman. So, so her her performance, the stage performance that she's you know presenting, is really to emulate a, a, a primitive tribal society where a medicine person is being possessed by spirit, and it's and everyone's supposed to believe that God is telling them what to do. The voice of the of the channel is now the voice of God. That's that is a very primitive ritualistic appeal, but it's given in the is it given in within a, a a modern Christian context, right? I mean, she's on a she's broadcasting this over a TV, and it's not Stone Age, right? But I say to you, the appeal is to a, this is like a Stone Age medicine person, and it's a big drama because unless we're buying into this faith thing that that's actually the voice of God coming out of her, then all we got here is is uh, you know is, is sheer madness. I mean. If we had, if little children are watching that stuff and, that, and that they're growing up believing that that's real, then I think that it's making children ignorant. You know, I, I don't. So, in other words, I don't support that. Uh, but this, this is this is the White House embracing. The White House embraces this, and and you know we have a hard time finding 
evangelical Christians in the United States who, who support these, this kind of ritualistic appeal? Uh, no, we won't at all. There's a large population, but do I, do I say this is a, a good approach? Uh, this is grandstanding, you know. This is grandstanding, and if this isn't being used to raise to raise money, you know, send send us your your. Uh, that's kind of low, uh, if that's true. Eyes, eyes of Tammy Faye dollars, right? <laughs> oh my goodness! It, I mean, that's it, so it, it low. It has that kind of appeal to me. It doesn't appeal to me like this is a real spiritual thing. This is a this is a uh, this is a, this is a street performance. Uh, you know, I, I I can go down to the homeless part of town here and watch someone do that too. John, but, let me ask you: Do you think John? Do you, John, let me ask you this: Do you think Trump took advantage of the evangelicals? Um, well, evangelicals have a, you know are not unjust in their hope for uh, for virtue in government. You know that they want their people in government. And such. I don't think it's virtuous for them to to, to want to succeed. Uh, but uh, yeah, is, is Trump Trump is is a uh, is, is is the Madonna of Catholics. I mean, he wears the cross. But how did that happen? Ultimate. By the way, how on earth did Trump become the Messiah? Oh, that yeah, this is. I, I'm just wondering because look, I, I don't, I don't hate the guy at all. I kind, I like the guy to be honest with you. I, I don't want to, I don't want anything bad to happen to the guy to be honest with you. But you know, I remember a different sort of Donald Trump from the reality TV era from 2004, 2005. Those are the sort, of, sort of, um, that's like the sort of era that I remember him from. You know, I, I see him very differently than most of most Americans do. I think. Um, you mean you saw him eat the pizza backwards and stuff? I did. I did see that. But I've just seen this guy for so many years, and it's like I, I'm having trouble sort of seeing where along the time period he became a god. Well, yeah, so it is very different. And uh, I think that they're pitching anything they can to, to, uh, to, to, to dupe an audience is what I'm getting. You know, that they, these, this is, this, I, I get it That's a grift, all of this. And if the, if the public will, will buy it, they're selling it, like a lot of other cultural manifestations. And that includes, like, by, the I, way, I feel, by the way, John, I must uh, include um, President Obama as well. He was also seen as a godlike figure. Oh, okay. Well, so the mess, messianization of the president is a known uh, press uh, uh, technique to place halos over the heads of presidents and other figures in government in the United States. Right. Using the available lighting like chandeliers and stuff. Going on for a long time, so that yeah, so the the notion that you see it's it is by God decreed the United States. You see, this is what I'm saying. This mm -hmm. is the holy decree, and this this is prim, it's a primordial appeal back to the time when the kings were the divine the descendants of God, right? The kings were actually the sons of God, and that so you were being ruled by God, not just a human. So that's what they're appealing to. Is again, it's, they're appealing to the primal, just like that that uh, shaman minister is appealing to, appealing to primordial urges. There's no there's no refinement in that. That's you know that's not poetry. I mean, it's not. It's just, it's just. It's brutal. It's brutal ritual. So I say this is the same thing as like the. the I'm talking about the degradation of, of culture and society that we're, we're we're appealing to such lower, lowest common denominator values. Now we're losing. Uh, we're we're losing a lot of our potential for to be better humans. I, I think I've kind of lost the thread from from where you were going with that last point. But I, I hook back onto the notion that we're, you know, we're we're we're, we're substituting. Uh, what, what appears to be ineffective junk food for, for good nutrition that will get us into the game and, and, and make some great plays in life. I just don't remember there ever being a time where people are actually celebrating politicians and people in the media so much like this. Uh, celebrating people and politicians or, or well, I, I don't know if we're celebrating as much right now, but people are showing intense identification with, uh, for example, like 
like let's say you know typically when candidates are declared winners and losers in elections that you know there's some you know people have feelings but uh this you don't necessarily see so much public excitement you know like ongoing protest and all this is you know it's kind of new novel i don't remember that when reagan was elected or you know gw bush i, I don't remember i mean right we contested election between uh between GW and uh, Gore, but uh, you know this level of, of public insanity. No, we didn't have that at all. Not like that, yeah. Uh, now, so to go back to what you're saying, you know, when did Trump become the Messiah? Well, when did his, you know when did the brand, the Trump brand, mm, when did it brand. attempt to you know uplift itself to the, you know transcend right its material origins? I mean, Trump was a developer. That was the brand, you know, for decades, right? Famous developer, good, bad, or ugly, it was famous, and that was the brand. And then they translated that into a television production brand. And then they turned it into a presidential campaign. But uh, yeah, this this appeal to loftiness is a uh, uh, yeah. It colors other presidencies. It's true. Uh, I think this is. I don't. I don't. I do not recall though. Although it was used, the, the iconography of, of messianism has been used uh, to portray presidents in the media past. I do not recall that any of you know Jimmy Carter was the chosen one or. I don't recall that uh, that he personally, you know, pleaded that to the public. Pretty I don't recall any there, yeah. pleading like this to anybody. This is the first president I'm familiar with actually making those pleadings. And I, I say over Twitter is where a lot of this happened. Yeah, chosen one, all that was on Twitter. So, uh, the, you know, he's a pitch man. And I, I, I said this when I came talked to you guys early in the year. I said, president is a famous salesman. He's, he likes to pitch, and he always likes to have something good to pitch. He's always, whenever he comes to the microphone in front of the audience, typically he's got some, he's got something he's pitching. He's putting deals together, right? And so all the stuff they're pitching, one, you know, pitch you is Jesus, pitch you is this, whatever. They're they're trying whatever. They're, they're throwing things against the wall to see what sticks, and they're, and they're 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 selling what the audience is already predisposed to buy. You know, if I want to sell Bibles, I probably wouldn't run out of market anytime soon, right? Exactly. Predisposed to buy it. And by the way, I'm just wondering about. Who is collecting that money from those red hats? That's a very profitable, profitable um, sort of um, product. There, it's a commodity. It was a very, a very famous, uh, yeah, uh, men and women uh, wearing wearing uh, Trump embroidered baseball hats. And I don't pretend to know the business dealings. I mean, it's so all, simple. Yeah, limited things. I know it was Ivanka so... has trademarks in China, <laughs> but uh, what do I know? It, it was. It's so simple, John, that it just made a killing. I would have to imagine. I, it, you know the the message and and the the, the appeal of, you know the, the garment itself the whole thing some very smart uh, branding person marketing person put that together and uh, made a killing on it it's true I'm actually pissed off that I didn't come up with something like that well you'd have to be the you'd have to be the right person to, for the audience to hear from the first place hearing that from Trump was part of what made it work because I don't know if another pitchman could have no of course not yes <laughs> of to course the not. effect My I mean he pitched goodness. eating pizza backwards and look what happened. Whew. Who eats pizza backwards? The president. That, that, that's yeah. one of those things that goes on up in Trump Tower, apparently, if you watch My the My goodness. <laughs> My goodness. Well, again, so, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's all very exciting. You know, American legacy is, 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 is rife with mysticism, the founders being Masons and all. Right. You know, in God we trust, right? I mean, there's even, you know, this, this, this whole uh, occult uh, overtones to the history of the nation and, it, and its formation born born in a nest of occult ideas already. And so if, if there are paranormal and occultic indications that arise, you know, in, in the course of governing, uh, so be it. I mean, you don't have to look very far to find a, to find a, a bust of Moses with horns on his head, uh, I think down in the Capitol building. And I know. We've got that one, right? Oh, don't shock everyone here, John. 
They're just they're barely <laughs> they're barely realizing that this is a um, Masonic Republic. Yeah, and so you know that w- when we see indications of that from time to time, you know, are we so surprised really? Uh, and and do we really understand what they were alluding to, anyways? You know, all the secret symbolism and all that. Do do we really, really, really understand? So people like me had to you know become part of a traditional society just to get a, a basic concept of what was going on with all that ancient knowledge stuff. Absolutely, and uh, John, we are not just um, finished just yet. We're not at, at the close here, by the way, We're almost coming close to the end here, by the way. And I do appreciate your time uh, greatly. I'm hearing jingle bells in the distance. Are you now? Who's there? Is that Santa? <laughs> on his way. He's on his way. Yes. Um, by the way, I didn't, I forgot to mention Dr. Fauci. What exactly yep. is your thoughts and opinions on one Dr. Fauci? Oh, that he, um, well, he, he rep, to me, he represented America's institutional science, where a lot of your tax dollars went. You know, his career from the 1980s forwards uh, is a very rich career and a very prominent figure. He was a, you know, a leadership figure in American medicine for decades. And now it's quite possible that uh, he made a number of mistakes, given his duties and responsibilities that he, was, he had to assume all the, for all those decades. Over that time, there's been a lot of critics of Dr. Fauci that have arisen. And further, even in the last year, people have said that they found they were a little disturbed that, you know, on the one hand, early on, he would be telling people, don't wear a mask. And later, people don't wear a mask. And, you know, what I'm saying? Like people the confusion from the mixed messaging. And Dr. Fauci did play a part in some of the mixed messaging as well. But in terms of his competency to evaluate the questions of the day, um, I, I'm a believer in having America's best resources on the job. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I think out of the team that I saw, including the leadership at the CDC, Dr. Burks, I thought that Dr. Fauci impressed me the most. Uh, his knowledge isn't perfect, but he's, I think he's competent to evaluate the problems more so than a lot of the other people, uh, including the political appointees who, who replaced, uh, was it Alex Azar or somebody in the last three months who just resigned? I mean, you know, political appointees, Dr. Fauci's real scientist. By the, by the way, people were calling him Dr. Falsi. Yeah, well, you know, and people have a lot of, you know, criticism and he works, you know, he's working, uh, he's, he's the people's scientist here. He's going to take the criticism in a free speech society. People aren't going to shut up. You know, he's a big boy. But uh, he rep- what he represents to me when I think about, it, you know, America's facing a, a, a kind of an apparent problem, apparent, you know, seemingly. And America's best resources should be on the problems. It's, it's, I have no question in my mind that the best resource in the country should be working the problems to protect the nation. It's, I, I just don't think any differently about it. Uh, uh, you know, I, I uh, and there's probably even greater people in 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 the in the medical industry and working in, in in roles helping in public medicine that I have no clue about who could even be better leaders. And, and I want those people to be promoted. And I want America's investment in science and science and education to come to fruition and and to be you know have a have a big success. Uh, I I do want that. Even though I, I talk anti-vax and I criticize and stuff, I absolutely do want the best because that is that's the promise. I mean, America. America's investment and, you know, all the de- all the generations who invested to make all the things possible that you guys accomplished, you guys should be continuing to build on that and, and expanding, you know, for, for on that record of accomplishment. It's, it's a no-brainer to me. Absolutely. And by the way, I think I uh, we had a missed call from the 234 area, area code. Huh. Yeah, I'm not sure who was calling in, but I do apologize for missing your call there. And um, I believe... Um, John, I do have a clip for you here from early on in the game of our friend, Dr. Fauci. The mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a a droplet. But it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, 
there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face. And can you get some schmutz sort of staying inside there? Of course, of course. But when you think masks, you should think of healthcare providers needing them. And yes, that was him very early on in the game, by the way. Exactly. And so this uh, initially, and uh, you know, I was I was paying attention to what he had to say, and I thought it was a reasoned argument. And then we note that he, you know, he, later his position changed. Uh, in part, there was concern, perhaps, that the, uh, the the stockpiles of PPE throughout the United States were um, not as well managed as they could have been. And uh, if if the public were to to take up all the inventory of available masks, that would be denied to the first responders. Uh, the reports of out of hospitals of the staff being reduced to wearing garbage bags as PPE is indicative of that was a problem. By the way, he also conducted an interview just um, recently, not too long ago, Hmm. and I have a clip of that for you too. His comments caused concern from uh, the black community, by the way. Let's hear what he has to say. Here we go. Those of us who are trying to convince our African-American brothers and sisters to trust the process because it's ultimately to the benefit of the life and safety of the individuals as well as your families and your entire community is that to first understand the reasons and empathize with the reasons for the mistrust as opposed to pushing back against the mistrust. And one of the ways that I try to do it is to try and dissect out um, not the fundamental core of the distrust, but take the particular situation you're dealing with now and say, let's try and start off on an even footing. What are the reasons for this particular situation, namely the vaccine, that you have reluctance and skepticism about getting vaccinated? And I think there are two major issues that when I explain them to my friends and colleagues and people who I don't know in the African-American community and the community of people of color, is that the speed with which this was done? Isn't there something reckless about that? Well, the first thing is to point out that the speed has nothing to do with compromising safety or scientific integrity. It's due to the extraordinary and exquisite advances in vaccine platform technology, which has allowed us to do things in weeks to months that formerly took years, several years. And to engage in a dialogue and talk about that, as opposed to just feeding it to them. The second thing is, well, how do I know that this vaccine is really safe and is really effective? Is this just some government ploy? We've been fooled before by the federal government. You gave some very cogent instances just a moment ago. Well, or is it the pharmaceutical companies that want to get rich over us? Well, we can address both of those. First of all, the determination of whether a vaccine is truly safe and effective is not made by the company indirectly, and the government doesn't see the data at all until way down the process. The data first come to a totally independent data and safety monitoring board that is made up of experienced clinicians, scientists, vaccinologists, statisticians, and ethicists. They look at the data and they independently determine if it's safe and effective. If it is, they show it to the company. The company then analyzes it and presents it to the FDA and applies for an emergency use authorization or outright approval. The experienced career scientists, not the politicians, 
the Korea scientists in the FDA examined the data and then, in association with their own advisory committee, the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, or VERPAC, those individuals then advise the FDA. When they then say that the vaccine is safe and effective, I will tell you all that I myself will be perfectly comfortable in taking the vaccine, and I would recommend it to my family. So it really is a process of trying to dissect out what the reasons for the skepticism are and to try and address them individually, fully respecting the underlying skepticism that you have every reason to have for historical reasons, to balance those two. That's how I would approach it. So so in that conversation, um, and and what I mentioned earlier is that there have been advances in society, including African-Americans in science. Um, and, and my understanding is that that independent monitoring board has African-American scientists on it. Uh, in fact, one works with you directly. Um, I don't know if she's on the board, but we know that we have an African-American scientist that works with you directly. directly. And so this is, uh, and, and talk, you, you can speak about her work, but also how important that is in terms of breaking down these myths in the, in, in, in the historic um, uh, trepidation because it's a new day. It's not 1930 anymore. This is 2000. This is 2020. And so the, the times have changed and the input of African-American scientists in this process is much deeper than one might think. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I think the example that you gave, Ambrose, is an excellent example. The very vaccine that's one of the two that has absolutely exquisite level, 94 to 95% efficacy against clinical disease and almost 100% efficacy against serious disease that has shown to be clearly safe. That vaccine was actually developed in in my institute's vaccine research center by a team of scientists led by Dr. Barney Graham and his close colleague, Dr. Kizmekia Corbett, or Kizzy Corbett. Kizzy is an African-American scientist who is right at the forefront of the development of the vaccine. So the first thing you might want to say to my African-American brothers and sisters is that the vaccine that you're going to be taking was developed by an African-American woman. And that is just a fact. I mean, that is a fact. And I think that's some of the things that people don't fully appreciate. All right, I'm stopping it there. And those comments caused quite a concern for uh, some some folks in the black community. And of course, I don't represent the black community, obviously. But, you know, I, I talk to plenty of people that are involved in that community, my friend. And uh, not all of them are very happy about uh, Dr. Fauci's comments, of course, because of the syphilis experiment that our, our uh, own government took advantage of. If I was a member of the black community and I, and I was aware of syphilis experimentation, then I would be vigilant uh, to protect my family and myself uh, against uh, further crimes. Uh, to, to, to quickly sidestep and then come back again. Yeah, go ahead. What you're saying. It's clear to me that uh, Dr. Fauci interrupted President Trump on, on the matter of uh, vaccine delivery times when, when he was introduced with the task force at their first presser. Uh, he interrupted the president deliberately to explain that vaccine development times usually are, you know, three to five years. So I, I'm I'm not persuaded 
that he suddenly became enlightened about some new standard in vaccine production in the last eight months when he when he willfully interrupted the president of the United States to declare that it took up to five years. I, th I think when he interrupted the president of the United States that he went he went past his eyeballs with conviction then. So it's you know people will say say one thing one day and say one thing the next. I was that that's what I will remember. I I I am not going to pretend that Dr. Fauci isn't su subject to the influences of uh, of a significant uh, force social forces like government and corporations and pressures. I, I'm not going to pretend that that isn't influencing his his behavior. Uh, you know I initially said that I thought he was competent, but here I will call this and I will say that uh, you can't you can't interrupt a resident over over development times and then come back later and say that oh we made it, we we do things this is the 21st century now and it's all different. Now further to that. Um, you know, he's making a lot of noise, like he's sort of indicating that the, that the black community's uh, concerns about the health and safety is some kind of a problem, you know, by his tone of voice. I didn't appreciate that, that Dr. Fauci was giving a real bedside care approach in that talk. It's kind of kind of brutal to me. Right. He did so, do that. So, you know, it sounded, kind of sounds like he's at the edge of his rope in terms of what he can offer as a person. But it also sounds like someone who's under significant, he's locked into a lot of pressure. A person in his position has responsibilities and duties. You know, he's answerable to people in every direction. So those pressures are also driving his decision making. And I think the public has to look at that. It, you know, me as an, making an assessment as a, as a successful analyst on international events, like for decades, you don't interrupt the president of the United States and contradict him in front of, in front of an audience over questions of, of vaccine development time, unless you know what you're talking about. Uh, Dr. Fauci yes. was, was competent when he interrupted the president, and what he's saying now doesn't make any sense to me. Of course, what we are referring to is the Tuskegee uh, incident, the great syphilis experiment that our government took full advantage of. And of course, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I just worry about what I put into my body and what it will do later down the road. And uh, by the way, we are joined by, um, I think, another listener here i i hope he's still on the line um caller are you still out there i i apologize for putting you on hold there i'm here mike no pause you needed uh, happy to wait long time no time yeah how you been oh pretty good up and down you know like roller coaster understood understood glad to get on with your guest here i'm sorry i was late i was busy doing some patriotic shit uh oh so i don't know where to start with this guy uh oh this with uh the most dangerous kind of idiot because he's an intellectual idiot Think he has it out for you, John? Oh, I'm I'm dangerous and I'm an idiot. Well, that, that sounds rational. Do you, is this like a smear campaign on the air, or what kind of special reasons do you have for calling it, calling people and like personally attacking them? Is because you don't have any arguments and you're an irrational, irrational complainer because you're having trouble dealing with your emotions. What are you feeling today? Are you having difficult emotions coming up that are troubling you? You want to talk about your difficult wow, emotions? I'm here to listen to you. This guy's great. He just psychoanalyzed me like that quick. No, you see, the problem is how I'm real long-winded, and I can speak for like 20 minutes without a breath. So I tried to give you the Well, you're attacking you people. The first thing you're saying is an attack. So so that doesn't tell me that you have a, a really full uh, quiver uh, of, of things to say, quite Hold frankly. There, it tells me that you've run out of things to say before you even started. Let me explain to you how conversation works. Like, you pause, and I talk. I pause, and you talk. Let me just start with... Oh, now, now, now you want to control my speech. Is, is this within my rights? I thought I had, I had protected speech. And now you're telling me how to yes. exercise protected speech? Are you a constitutional expert, sir? Wow. This guy's, this guy's something special, Mike. I don't know where you dug him up from. But hey, let me get, let me get you some facts here, Doc. It says Dr. Fauci you like to speak about. Here's a couple of factoids about Dr. Fauci, right? His daddy, his daddy Fauci, worked along with Bill Gates' daddy in 1935 at the IG Farben plant under George Soros making Zyklon B to exterminate Jews. Now, if you want to trust these health industry heads, you've been on year on, on the air all year talking in circles to keep everybody scared and confused. 
but not one time do they utter from their mouth, hey, make sure you're getting plenty of zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, exercise, healthy immune system. And you want to trust these health industry experts who have you running around in circles and having you taking a, 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 a stole $7 trillion out of thin air for the first half of the year. You sound they're, really they're upset when you're saying these things. Does the Attorney General of the United States know you, that you're, you're concerned about these issues? There, have you talked to him personally you, to express you, your concerns to the Attorney General? Because he's the chief law enforcement officer in the United States. Isn't that correct? You know who the chief is, the commander-in-chief? Our beloved POTUS, Donald John Trump. That's well, the chief, chief the chief, the chief law enforcement officer is the attorney general, William Barr. So if you make him yes, aware of your right. concerns and, through your potential representation, the then you certainly you, you will get, you'll get a remedy through the fair and impartial courts. Isn't that correct? Fair and impartial. This guy's really drinking the Kool-Aid. Let me explain something to you about it. The Banking Act of 1871 took the republic down. It is not – like SCOTUS did not – they do not represent we the people. They represent the United States of America Corporation. That's a fact. It's enumerated in federal law. Title You sound very upset when you say those things to me. Are, are you feeling upset right now? So this is your way of trying to wrangle a conversation. It's just I'm just asking a question. I, I, I'm sorry. You, you sounded very upset. I, I'm just I'm just being a caring uh, listener. That's all. I care. Uh, I'm no, sorry. I, if I, I you know, I'm caring too much. I'm sorry. No, you're just being a shrink asshole. That's what you're doing. That's okay. You see, I, I'm what they call intense. I, I have feelings. I, I have, uh, I'm have. i an intense guy. Like, I know things. I, I do things. This is what I do. And what I'm giving you is a matter of fact. When I give you these facts, you come up with this bebop bullshit about my emotions. Leave my emotions out of Your, your emotions aren't bullshit, buddy. I honor your emotions. Well, I mean, emotions. I mean, your be, emotions are valuable. To, to be fair. Value them. They're not bullshit. To, to we be don't fair. talk like that around here. Yeah. We don't talk to people about their emotions. <laughs> like in value, we, we, we value emotions here. Yeah, to be fair, caller, we, we do care about you. Don't worry. Thanks, thanks. We're on your well, side. Don't worry, caller. Yeah. I care about the facts. You see, like this shit that's in this, this vaccine, right? Luciferese 060606. They can't put it in, in your face any further. The bioluminescence that goes in your skin, it is an mRNA modifier. It changes your very genome. There's no going back from this crap. And they brought it out. Well, of we've been talking about that. We've been saying that we're skeptical about, about the value and the safety of us too. We are we are concerned about public safety and vaccine vaccines, just like you. We care. Yeah, we about talked that, about that already. We don't want anyone to get hurt by it. Oh man, I, I just don't know where to go with you. You're just a shrink. You're a typical. Well, I'm, I'm just assuring you that we just said those long, very same things on the show. We, we, Mike, Mike, and I we're talking about yeah, that. We just we talked about, about that. issues too. Like <laughs> yeah. us. We we all care about it. Thank you for validating our concerns. You you also are concerned about the same things we are, obviously, right? Right. I'm more concerned about the uh, Republican liberty than some bullshit Rona disease that's uh, the common cold. You think it's the common I mean, you cold? Look at the death. You look at the deaths. You go into any ER right now. they got to shut down. Like in Ohio right now, they've got everything shut down. You can't go anywhere without a mask. If you go into an ER, there's nobody in there. they got all these dead numbers, right? I have not seen a procession, a funeral procession once this year. They lie about the death. They manage like this disease is so deadly. You have to take a test to find out if you even have it. Really? I mean, so, the, the so you you don't you're unable to get any civic help from any of your government officials to help you to make assessments about first hand assessments about death counts because that's important to you. You want to know the exact number of people dead. And you want to verify those numbers, make sure that they're not fake numbers. They're they're, they're not illegal uh, illegal deaths, but that they're legally counted. Right? That you care. That's what you're concerned. No, no, what, no. What I doc, what I care about is that uh, well, liberty, freedom. The government gets out of my pocket, which creating trillions of dollars out of thin air and giving it to the big corporations, which pharmaceutical genocide on us through tyranny that's what i care are you are you a businessman what kind of an occupation are you involved in wear a mask but don't tell me what to do with my body because i'm not doing it i'm not concerned about my health because i have a healthy robust immune system well good i'm glad to hear that are are you in business what kind of work are you involved in my employment doesn't matter it's not important to you or the okay well you're a working man i'm assuming is that correct 
You just, you just uh, want the opportunity to, to prosperity and, and realize your, your potential in the American my economy. My bills are paid, partner. My bills are paid. I don't need government money. I pay my bills. I look after my mother. I, I take care of me and mine. But I'm glad to hear that. Again, my, my, personal, my personal life isn't what really is the matter here. It's just tyranny. Like you talk about Trump, as you call him a. Uh, uh, well, you, you want to talk about crimes? You know, just tell tell to William Barr. He, he's 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 there for you. He's your hey, he's your uh, uh, you. leader uh, of the law Billy enforcement Barr. community. Yeah, let me tell you some problems I got with Billy Barr. All right. Well, one, he he was part of the deep state operation running drugs out of Latin America. Problem. One. Why did President Trump, two. with his best people, put William Barr in that position? Well, he had to put through a lot of people through a lot of positions because he's in the swamp. But let me come back to Bill Barr. Okay, he was the attorney general over Ruby Ridge and Waco, where the Constitution was egregiously violated on America. Uh, Bill I had firsthand contact I, with I the people who them. suffered over there at Ruby Ridge. I, I met them down in Dallas in 1999. Yeah, but again, the Constitution is violated. Did, did you hear? Come back to this. What, I, he, Bill Barr says, I don't see enough evidence to talk about fraud in the election. You have to be a moron or completely blind not to see the systemic corruption is everywhere rampant and around. I mean, they're, they're blatantly speaking it. Uh, Michigan just said, oh, we got the, we got the uh, Dominion voting machine results, but we're not going to show them to you. Why? Because it proves a fraud. Yet the, well, do, the you, do you believe that William Barr has criminal on... intent in denying uh, resources, yes, further resources the to these state. claims? you think he has criminal intent when he's doing this? I do, yes. I think he is part of the deep state cabal that's trying to take down our, our POTUS. That is shocking. See, what, we have criminals in the Department of Justice? That is shocking. Hello. Are you a moron? Come on. Are you, are you seriously that stupid? Like, they weaponized the FBI. Excuse me. This isn't about me. This isn't about my intelligence. I know. I know. I'm just, this isn't I'm about just me at all. I, I mean, we're talking about the Department of Justice, the United States Department of Justice and criminals? What are you talking about? Oh, my God. That's shocking. You said oh you're talking about criminals in the Department of Justice. I think it's shocking. Obviously, you're detached from reality. You, you are, uh, what is it, cognitive dissonance. This is the word. You're detached from reality. You just don't see what's happening here. I'm just asking you questions, it's and I'm, I'm responding to what you're saying, bro. If that wasn't your answer, then I, I'm sorry. Maybe I misunderstood. What was your answer again? I mean, to be fair, you did call in and call him an asshole. I mean, that's, I think you're a little out of line there, but, you know, that's just my opinion. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> still, uh, well, this is still, uh, you have a wonderful platform, Mike, where we can speak, uh, we can speak our minds. As YouTube lets you do it, because uh, I mean, there you go. Like here you go. This this is to illustrate the example. You can't get on Twitter and speak freely. You can't get on YouTube and speak freely. You have to deal with fact checkers. And if you don't agree with the official narrative, you say anything against it, they censor you and remove you from the platform. What does that tell you about their so-called truth? Well, I mean, I agree with the caller. This is a serious problem, and I, I think uh, this needs a remedy uh, for for everybody involved. For, you know, guarantees, constitutional guarantees, should be protected uh, by, by all means. You can judge a man by his enemies. The Republicans hate Donald Trump. The Democrats hate him. The media hates him. The globalists hate him. Why? Because he's putting America first. He's a patriot. He's restoring the republic. Putting the yeah, and how's that going? He's got jail. up until January 20th to complete his work, and then he'll be out of there. So I hope he can get it all that done. Do you think he's going to complete all of his objectives by January 20th? See, there you 20th? go. That's not, it was a fraudulent election. That's not going to happen. There's it was a fraudulent election? Does the Department of Justice know about that? Absolutely they do. Really? It's what are they doing to prosecute him? There's two words for you. It's called Insurrection Act. Executive so Order you, 138. So you're saying the president has to intervene, that the Justice Department can't do anything now? No, they're pretty incompetent. I mean, it was pretty blatant when, when Bill Barr said that No, no, the president brings the best election. people. President Trump's best people now. Come on. Well, Come on. Best people. Are we still talking best people or something else now? What are we talking so that's you putting words here forward. No, you see. No, no I'm reciting okay. what the president said. President Trump has put the best people in office. That's what he said. I'm citing the president of the United States. I'm more, it's more, it's more patriotic than what you're saying. <laughs> All right. There's nothing more patriotic than dissent. You ever wore a uniform? 
Have you ever stood in line and looked? Yeah, I wore a uniform. How about you? I have. Yeah. Good Don't for tell you. me about patriotism. I still well, good work for you. You did some duty. For, you did some service and duty for your country. I'm glad to hear that. I'm still doing it today, right now, speaking to you on the airwaves, trying to align you with consent. Yeah, well, by, by insulting people, you're failing. You want to learn communications. Maybe you go back to school and you study communications, how to communicate with people. One of the first things you do, you, you put aside the ad hominems because it, people think that you're irrational. You want to participate in the adult world. The big boys don't play the irrational card. You see, schools have the problem. Little well, social justice words get to go to school and dictate, and, and the professors, they, they run this liberal curriculum. Liberalism is a mental disease. Right, here you go, your DSM. You got a DSM, right? And any trans whatnot, that, that's a mental illness, am I right? By the way, we... Um, not in the DSM? By the way, um, we, we might have lost the call here, by the way. I'm still here. Not your call, but I mean uh, my guest. Oh, what about in Chase Moy? No, I... I don't think so, because he was no, pretty his, good. He was going toe-to-toe. His phone was um, a little bit weird. He's saying that I hung up on him. Again. I was going to make the point about the DSM. It's Hold on, let me, let me call him right back. Yes, don't worry. Right, so I'll run the air here real quick, Mike. So the DSM is the manual to which psychiatrists diagnose diseases or mental illness. And one of them, which is if you have some kind of trans disorder, you're born a man and you think you're a woman, this is a disorder. You can identify however you want. That's fine. But this is a mental illness. And the head of the Pennsylvania Health Department is a man who's living as a woman. So you have somebody who has a mental illness in charge of the health and well-being of the entire state of Pennsylvania. That don't tell you, like, wonders if, you know, the world is upside down. I mean, SCOTUS wouldn't even, the Supreme Court wouldn't even hear the case of election fraud, which is just rampant and through the irrefutable proof, video proof, is evidence is left and right, up and down in every which way. I mean, it's out of their own mouth. And, and like, you just look at the, the, like, oh, wear a mask, wear a mask. But you can, like, burn, burn, loot, and murder and tear cities apart, and that's no problem. But when you go to a Trump rally, all of a sudden the mask becomes a problem. This is a liberalism. It is a mental disorder. Hold on one moment. I'm seeing if I could bring him back on here. Uh, via Skype. Let's see what happens here. Yes. You got to remember, John is in Canada, by the way. And uh, let's see. Currently unavailable. Currently unavailable. That's not good. And, and you know, I, I start off as an insult, but I meant it so sincerely. And again, he's, he's an intellectual. He's incredibly smart and educated, but yet he's an idiot. And this is the most dangerous kind of person. He's smart, he but he's an articulate idiot. Articulate his position with, with merit, but yet he's a moron. I mean, you look at Dr. Fauci. He said in 2016, the next, I think it was 2016, last administration, he said the, the next administration will have a pandemic to deal with. You just look at the facts. You follow the money. And in solving any crime, there's methods and procedures to doing this. Follow the money. 2019, November, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation got together at the John Hopkins University to say, what if we had a coronavirus pandemic? What would we do? And the main topic of this conversation, they had generals, admirals, health industry, corporations, it, all these people came together. And, and the big topic was, how can we get people vaccinated? We can't forcibly do it, but we can get the industries to make their employees do it. It's all about getting us jabbed with the vac. And, and again, you just follow the money. You look at the people who had money to make on this. And it's just like 9-11. They, they fear and terror and they take our money. Take our money. Seven trillion dollars out of thin air. It's never in history have they ever quarantined the healthy. We're so MK Ultra mind numbed morons. We listen to what they say because we're scared. Why? Because Bookface told you so. Bookface. That's my my uh, way of thumbing my nose to uh, Facebook. I like that name, by the way. And, and again, if you do the math and, and you get intellectual about it, when you get intellectual, you're going to find out real problems. They're, they're like they got to got to piss you off. I mean, when you find out like the USA is a corporation, okay, and, and we have a debt. This this debt that we owe our big banker Rothschild uh, overlords. And President Trump did not make our default delinquent debt payment February 16th of this year. One week later, they shut the world down. 
You'll say corporation incorporated in the Banking Act of 1871. So when it keeps talking about the, 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 the system, the system is corrupt, rigged, and, and just crooked. Again, people are morons. There's not this whole election. Biden's hiding in the basement, not taking any interviews. And when he talks to the media, he gets a softball question. So there's no, there's no intellectual honesty here. We're calling him, by the way. Old school way. You heard the ring. I heard it. Hi, John, you, Mike. John, are you alive out there? Of course. Ah, so you can't hear me now. I can hear you now. You sound great. I always sound great. That's true. But much better than... Mind. Right, but much better than you did before. Uh, that's good. You have a better connection. I'm glad to hear that. How, how is your caller doing? He's still here. Hey, John. Okay, well, I, I, I'm going to take I, the I second to apologize. Your conversation. I'm sorry. He was waiting for you, John. John, I'm, John can I take the second to apologize? Were you listening while you were, uh, while you, while you were off the air there? I, I didn't hear you. No, I'm sorry. I, I asked if you were listening while you were off the air. I explained the nature of my No, sir. Call, but I, I, want, I want to apologize, and I'll explain it again so you, you understand the basis to, that I levied this insult. Okay? Where you're, you're an incredibly intellectual man. Okay, and, and you're, you're astute in your field, you, you know, you've got papers on the wall that say you're smart, and you are, you're, you're a smart guy. But when you, when you buy into this Kool-Aid nonsense, this makes you, as I would term, an idiot. And, so, and you're the dangerous yeah, bro, kind. Because bro, because you're, you're contrarian, smart. and you need to, to be the opposite of me to identify, create an identity, that's what the issue really is. If, if I wasn't here, you, you may, may, your points may or may not be valid, but whether or not I believe anything or buy into anything is irrelevant when it comes to the facts. You know, you just you're, you need me here because you need someone to lean on when you want to get loud about issues. And I'm here to support you. I want you to know that. But, you know, really, there's a differentiating line here, too. Uh, you know, you know, we're, we're all just trying to make make the best out of the situation with the best information we have, bro. I'm not trying to tell you or your family how to live. I'm just here sharing my opinions and my perspectives because I'm a guest on the show. I'm just invited to be here. That's not because I think I'm some big shot. I'm, I'm just, I'm just uh, I'm trying, I'm trying my best. I'm trying to learn too by listening to folks like you. I know you're concerned, and I hear, I hear your concerns. I'm not ignoring your concerns at all. Wow, that's great. Thank you. I feel better here. I'm smiling on the inside and laughing on the outside. So, so yeah, so that's great. So you're a long time listener to the show. You've known Michael for a long time. Oh yeah, for a while. It's been, it's been a while. Yeah. A good show. And Michael Michael covers a lot of diverse topics. He covers he's guests on talk about stuff I don't know about every day. You know, almost every day there's guests, <laughs> the experts that are on this show. Far beyond anything that I know. But I have very narrow, very narrow understanding of things, just very limited. And I just try to work within my lane. That's all I'm really doing. Well, I think the, I, I don't I don't think that anything I'm saying replaces the value of anyone else's contribution. I think the um our friend here, uh, you know, he came a little hot. That's all right. It happens. You know, everyone's a little fired up. I appreciate that, by the way. Uh, caller, do you have anything else to add? No, I could go on, but it's really going to go anywhere. I mean, I could throw some more data points on the wall, and then he can tell me about my emotions, and it's not going to really get anywhere. Well, I'm glad that you called in. Uh, I, I'm sorry you don't feel you're making any progress. I got to hear what you had to say, so I got some value out of it. Thank you. Well, thank you much. Glad I didn't have to pay for this conversation. <laughs> Great call, by the way. Thank you. See you, Mike. Take care. And uh, there he goes. It wasn't really um, a call I expected there. Are people fired up? People are fired up. Well, people are pissed off, as I told you. And that's a good reflection of the people I was referring to. People are angry. It's true. You know, I, I, I do my best to try to be an administrator uh, in a group on Facebook with like 10,000 members and 5,000 active members. Yeah, I got, you know, I got years of just discontent that I've uh, been exposed to by reading the comments from the membership and <laughs> engaging with them and their concerns. Uh, I'm familiar with the, the intensity with which people feel this. 
but further, I think that what's happened as well is in, in some ways I've also a little bit out of touch because social media has deplatformed so many of the most vocal uh, conservatives that I'm, hear I'm hearing less from them than I used to in the past. And so, you know, tonight I'm going to hear some voices and some, you know, feelings, uh, concerns that uh, I'm hear everyone here. Easily, easily exposed to now. And I'm not, and I'm, I, I, by no means am I ignoring that there's more than 70 million people out there who feel disenfranchised right now. I'm not ignoring that at all. That's just a reflection of America right now. Lots of individuals out there are angry. And uh, before we sort of um, wrap it up here, that was another question I did have to ask you. Uh, John, uh, your thoughts and opinions on just this sort of, um, how else can I put this without sounding too rude? Um, I, I don't want to offend anyone, but I'll just say it seems like everyone is really trying to push for some sort of a civil war. You've seen yeah. these politicians really push for that. I, I don't know why. But your well, thoughts on that, John? I think, that the, I think my concern ramping up to the election was that uh, we would see factions uh, from people's movements uh, taking taking action in the streets. That's what my concern, like el escalations of, of existing political violence in the streets between Antifa's and Proud Boys, that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, vibe escalating to, to gunfire. And this hasn't happened. And what I believe is, I see, is that ultimately the people are looking, to, looking for leadership and direction Rather than assuming uh, assuming uh, uh, assuming control and, and uh, committing to action unto themselves, the temperament of the people seems to me they're looking for direction and they're waiting for cues from leadership. So that that's my perspective on that question right now is that it, it may be decided in Congress rather than in uh, in the streets as to whether or not any of that really happens because the sent again the sentiment of the people does not appear that they are ready to pour out of their, out on the streets and start killing each other over political uh, mistakes. It doesn't appear like that right now. It appears more like people are not prepared to do that because they reckon, in part because they know that there's a risk. And as I said before, we're at risk in North America of losing a lot because of, we we made we made so much progress. We're going to turn into Syria. If we go to if we go to that route, right? All you guys be left of us is bombed out cities. So uh, so we have a lot to lose. So uh, the cooler if the cooler heads prevail, uh, that won't happen. But as to as to a people's movement, you know, like a, a, a unibomb, whatever, you know, like the what I'm trying to get to is that the uh, yeah the act the protest violent activism of the late 60s and 70s uh, isn't seem to be doesn't seem to be manifesting as here as much as the possibility that uh, some leadership figures will emerge, let's say, out of Congress and will, uh, let's say, uh, these urges to secede and such will, will take a grasp there and that the people will follow the leadership. And that was that will be how the destiny of the country's decided is that the people will follow leaders rather than uh, assuming sort of a libertarian, every person for themselves type of stance and just starting to run their own show in their own neighborhood. I don't see it as much as that. It's the people waiting for leadership. In other words, leadership hasn't gone out of style. America identifies with strong leaders. They're looking for that. That the people will respond to that, and if that strong leader says go to war, they'll go to war. And if strong leader says make peace at home, they'll they'll find a way to make peace because they they identify with that more than they do with the the urge uh, to individual autonomy. If as we've seen, you know, as we sense and as we we fear, you know, there are the, the levels of anger in, in people's households is just outrageous right now and un, intolerable. But it hasn't translated into mass violence in the streets. And so, um, that's my thinking. By the way, John, before we wrap it up here, we do have one more call. I have no idea who this is. Let's take this call. Caller, you are live on the air. Let it rip. Go ahead. Let it rip. Oh dear. Um. Okay. Go ahead. 
Um, yes. Never mind. I'll I'll call back later. I mean, I'll call back. Well, later. the show's going to end right now. Did you have a question for uh, John? Uh, just about the vaccine. Yeah, go that ahead. we're now going to be the vaccines that we're now going to get. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, how safe does he think it is, especially for senior citizens? Well, like I think your question is—I think your question is very important, and that you would need to consult or, uh, someone with significantly more education and skills in this area than me. I can't—I can't define any kind of medical policy for the public around this right now. You know, I can't—I can't give credible answers on those kinds of questions. I think that—I think you are called upon to evalu- make further evaluations and inquire to the best of your ability. And if due to your deliberations and, and the information that you access that's available to the members of the public, you decide that this is safe and valuable for you, then you know that should be you should be free to make your own medical choices in that regard too. I'm sorry that I can't offer you any guidance, but I do care about. I have seniors in my own family. I care about the I care about the success of the seniors through all of this as well. I really do. Okay, my apologies. I just came into the show and I didn't know what your topic is. Well, we're glad that you called in anyways. It's good to hear your voice. Right. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for calling Okay. In. Thank you, Mike. You good got night. It. Good night. Um, but in terms of senior citizens, you know, they were almost looked at as the sacrificial lamb. Uh, senior citizens, right? You know, they're already, they're already under pressure uh, before you add the pandemic to the situation. There's lots of pressure on seniors to begin with. So they're a vulnerable, in other words, a vulnerable population, and uh, we have to rally around our seniors as well as our other vulnerable members of our society right now. Uh, What we believe or not or what facts we may have or imperfect knowledge or perfect knowledge we may have, we still have to rally around and unify our families and communities uh, in whatever ways we can. Uh, Up here, you know, the the government says wearing the mask is protecting the vulnerable, right? They're appealing to this notion of protecting the vulnerable, and protecting the vulnerable is, is, is ethical. Whether that means wearing a mask or doing something else, the point is that we are um, we're a society that cares, and if we, you know that's part of that's part of our hope for the future that we're, we're a society worth preserving if we care. Absolutely. That's all I can add. And John, in closing, I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program. It's always a honor to have you here. I always enjoy <sighs> our conversations; they're always fun and lively. I'm glad we took some calls and. Some people were angry, which we did our job. People were pissed off at what we were talking about. That's that's always the goal here, to cause that sort of emotion in the listener. So we succeeded. It was a very high energy show and uh, a lot of lot of uh, lot of fireworks. And uh, I, I was I was entertained and informed by being here tonight. Love that. I'm glad you're a good sport, John. And we will do this again on the other side, my friend. Please go ahead and uh, say whatever you'd like. The floor is yours. Thank you, Michael. My best wishes to you and yours uh, for the for the holidays and into the the winter season. You know, toughest time ever for sure for everybody. Everybody doing your best, making your best decisions. Stay informed. You know, stay connected with your friends, and uh, you know, hold out hope. Uh, you know, your ancestors made it this far. That's why you're here. We're made of the same stuff. We're made of the same success stuff, and uh, we're going to get through it. Not without you know, not without more struggle. There's plenty of struggle coming ahead. But I, I want to offer hope to people. I, I, I'm. I'm here. I'm I'm committed to uh, seeing my part through this. I hope each of you is committed to, to making it happen for you and your family as well. Uh, my website is yourinnervoice.com. For all commercial reasons, I'll tell you that I work as a as a clinician. I'm available for remote sessions. I have a very high performance 
practice that's recognized by top mental health professionals in North America. And so if you are engaged in counseling or coaching and you're looking for a a super turbocharged session with somebody with an international reputation for excellence, I invite you to visit my website, yourinnervoice.com. Find out about private sessions by telephone or Skype, one 888 my toll-free number, call in. Be happy to hear from you. I'll be on winter holidays like everybody else, but I'll be around. And winter's the time for you to do some some inner work. And and if you're interested in therapies and coaching, then my practice is is definitely a a great stop on your tour to wellness. Love that. And by the way, John, I'm going to have to bring you back on again very, very soon. We didn't get a chance to talk about any of the uh, stories you had highlighted for us. I feel terrible. You mean you're going to bring me back before the end of the year? Is that what you said? Of course. Well, I'd like to do that again, sure. Yeah, Yeah, we'll do it again, and we'll talk about some of the things that you wanted to address here and... I feel terrible. I mean, uh, John, I, I take notes, but all all of that goes out the window when I do the show. I noticed it's it's kind of a, you know live and spontaneous, and you know something was created tonight that we didn't we didn't imagine beforehand. It, we could only realize it by doing it, right? Correct. This is going to be a fun one to listen back to. Once again, thank you so much, John. I'll ring you back up very soon, my friend. Great to hear from you, Mike. All the best. Talk to you. Clockwise. Good night. Good night. And there he goes, boys and girls. That was Mr. John Kelly, who did a killer job here tonight interacting with all of you. I hope you enjoyed that. I appreciate your call, enlightened and preparing. I appreciate your call to Star Mountain. I know you called in. I really appreciate that. And of course, as we wrap up here tonight, I do want to thank all of you out there for listening to this live stream here. It's been a pretty goddamn good time, in my opinion. And if tonight's episode resonated with any of you out there and you want more content, please go to patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. And that's where you'll find bonus content. Oh yes. Lots of bonus content right there for you. Patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. And of course, make sure to subscribe to this YouTube channel if you have not done so already. And of course, take us on the road with you. Search the Michael Deacon program on all podcast platforms. Special shout out to all of you yet again. Those of you who do listen to us on the road and those who listen to us at 2 a.m. when you are working a terrible job, we love you. I hope you enjoyed tonight's show as much as I did. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody.